0: I'm 8.40 here. So about three weeks ago, I was diagnosed with uh, ADHD. And it's been something that's kind of been on the periphery of my consciousness that I should probably get checked out for, for this for at least uh, 15 years. Because about 15 years ago, I met a therapist who specialized in sex addiction. And I did an interview with her. You can find that in, in my archives. And she mentioned that every single one of her clients who are addicted to sex or addicted to love, that they were ADHD. And so that was kind of a prompt. Hey, maybe I should get this checked out. And then I started having uh, family members who were talking about maybe they have ADHD. Then I had family members who were diagnosed with ADHD, and the quality of their life took a dramatic jump upon getting uh, medicated with the equivalent of Ritalin or, or Adderall and. I mean, their life just dramatically improved upon getting medicated, yet I didn't do anything about this, right? I just kind of let it linger in the the back of my mind until about a month ago when I got two separate entreaties from people close to me saying, you know, please go get checked out for ADHD. And I did, got diagnosed, and then Thursday, I I finally took medication for the first time. So I received a lot of warnings about uh, this medication, Adderall, from friends of mine I believe all had abused it. And they warned me you won't be after sleep, and uh, there are severe side effects, and it's highly addictive, and you quickly become used to a particular level, and you just keep craving more and more Adderall. And uh, they felt it significantly depreciated the quality of their life. So I deliberately waited until a non work day, until Thanksgiving, until Thursday, to try my first dose. And when I took my first dose, I'm going to admit I was disappointed because I was hoping for a burst of energy. I was hoping for a burst of uh, euphoria. I was hoping for a burst of uh, confidence. I was hoping for a burst of productivity. Right? These are all the benefits of uh, Adderall from that that I'd read up on of people taking it. I didn't experience any of those things. I did experience feeling medicated. all right. I. I did not feel normal. It wasn't it wasn't heinous, right? But I, I just felt like I was drugged. I, I went ahead and took my Adderall as prescribed. So I have no history with abusing prescription medication. Uh for several years I took lithium. Uh for several years I took clonidine. For several years I took clonopam. I, I quit all three. Upon beginning my daily Alexander Technique teacher training, so I was doing daily Alexander Technique work, and so a couple of months into that daily work, I abandoned these three medications. I've also taken a prescription, Modafinil, and at no time with any of my prescription medications have I abused them, taken them for a non-prescriptive purpose or at a non-prescribed amount. So all my friends who warned me about the dangers of Adderall these were all people who had abused their prescription for Adderall and taken it at much higher rates than was prescribed. So does my modafinil get jealous of my Adderall? So when I went on Adderall, I quit the modafinil. So some people take it in combination, but not with a prescription, all right? There's no prescribed use, to the best of my knowledge, for both modafinil and, and Adderall. Now, it's uh, been four days since I've begun my twice daily five milligrams at a time Adderall routine. And here are the differences that I note. So I notice that when I read now, I have no desire to listen to music at the same time. So usually when I sit down and read a book, I would often have music playing in the background. So I think I'm a little bit more predisposed towards focus and I don't need quite as much stimulation so that that's one difference another difference I noticed is that I've started doing a lot more cleaning so I vacuumed my room for the first time in 10 weeks I like I went around my place uh, just uh, you know vacuuming and dusting and and cleaning so a lot more cleaning than is is normal for me and uh, I'd say I'm about average for heterosexual male, right, i have not usually been described as a slob. Uh, I'm not super neat. Uh, I'm not super dirty. I'm kind of average for, for a heterosexual male, but not just myself doing more cleaning. And also, I started taking care of some routine tasks that I just let lapse. And, of course, I can't definitively state to you, well, this is a direct result of my Adderall. But I... I think there might be a connection so for example I have I had fluorescent light bulbs here in this room that would emit a a low hum and I, I just finally got sick of that low hum and I googled it and read that yeah with fluorescent light bulbs having a low hum is very common so I just removed my fluorescent light bulbs with the hum and put in like regular light bulbs without a hum and uh, that's an improvement in the quality of my life. There's not this low-level hum going on in, in the background. I also ordered uh, two pairs of new jeans and became prepared to throw away two pairs of old jeans that have some you know, very minor little holes in, towards the, the bottom of, of my legs. But uh, I'd allowed myself to, you know, wear these old jeans with you know little holes at the bottom of the leg, and so I finally just took care of that. So that's. That's the difference. Now, I've kind of gone through my life verbally impulsive, just blurting out inappropriate things. And this has wreaked havoc on my life, but not just on my life, but on the lives of people close to me. And it's not just me. other, Other people in my family also have this habit of just blurting out inappropriate things. And this would leave me with kind of a a doomy gloomy beer it kind of in the, in the back of my psyche that whenever I get close to someone I will inevitably disappoint and hurt them because of this tendency I have to just blurt out things and I, I've also led my life knowing that I can't trust myself that I will inevitably blurt out things that are inappropriate that will cost me friendships status jobs you know, all sorts of things that are important to me. And I have this habit that I haven't been able to overcome. And yeah, there's just kind of a low level dread. So let me get my act together here.
1: Hamas has released 14 more Israeli hostages today, the third day of the Mideast ceasefire, and no word on the American hostages that the White House had believed could be included today. Since Bibi Netanyahu's war cabinet accepted the deal under enormous pressure, Hamas has now released 40 Israeli hostages in exchange for the ceasefire and the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners. And, of course, we're very happy... For those released and their anguished families, Netanyahu stressed the war will continue. And I'm sure that the day after Hamas, there will be no threat to Israel. I don't trust Hamas to do anything right. I only trust Hamas to respond to pressure. Let's stop right there. The media should not fall into the Hamas propaganda trap. that This is some grand humanitarian gesture, blessed by God. They kidnapped the Israelis as a bargaining chip. The Hamas terrorists seizing 240 hostages, most of them civilian families, including very elderly people and very young infants. Think about how barbaric that is. Look at that, a 2-year-old, an 85-year-old among those released Friday. Here's Ohad Mander, 9 years old being released, being reunited with his father. And Hamas, which held up yesterday's hostage release for hours, will use the ceasefire to reset its military and put its fighters in a better position to kill more Israelis. Netanyahu, who also came under pressure from President Biden, says he'll after the pause he'll resume the military campaign to topple Hamas, which, don't forget, started this war with its brutal massacre on October 7th, I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is Media Buzz. I had a free press.
0: Thanks, Howie. And uh, good, good point in the chat. It's been the only topic on Fox for the last month and a half. Yeah, Fox has just been resolutely pro-Israel to a greater extent than I, I believe it ever has been before. Uh, I. Don't recall seeing one pro-Palestine commentator as a guest on Fox for the the last six weeks. Not one, which is kind of extraordinary. And the chat complains, no coverage about what's going on in Ireland. Yeah, I know that there was a a stabbing and then a bunch of riots blamed on the far right. Do you notice that you, you often hear invocations of the far right in the news media, but very rarely do you hear... Any mention of the far left, I just went into Google News, put in far right something like one hundred and fifty thousand mentions put in far left something like fifty thousand mentions so a three to one ratio is a much lower ratio than than what I expected, but anyway, uh, getting back to my fourth day on Adderall like carrying with you a fear of your own impulsivity and the both self destructiveness of this trait and the the harm that it inevitably does to other people it's not a happy thing walking around with it and i may be reading too much into my 2 5 milligram pills a day of adderall but i feel like this fear has been lightened and i feel like this impulse is diminished compared to what it was prior to going on adderall i think i have more of an ability to wrestle with the mundane and non-exciting details of life that are you know, essentially part of being an adult. So I'm kind of excited about what my life might look like under Adderall, but I'm going to receive feedback from people close to me. I, I'd be glad if I can go through my life without causing, you know, unnecessary pain to other people. I'd be glad if I can start paying more attention to mundane details that uh, I used to just uh, skip, skip out on. Uh, I've caused myself tremendous damage by, Failing to keep track of important paperwork, failing to appropriately fill out uh, uh, paperwork, uh, yeah, I've just caused myself thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of damage and just untold amounts of aggravation because I did not pay attention to non-exciting details. I, I think I think I might be a little better at this. So, in 12 step programs, we often say there's no non spiritual solution to a spiritual problem, but at the same time, there may be all sorts of uh, non spiritual problems, such as ADHD, to which there is no spiritual solution. So, I do believe we live in a postmodern world where no single narrative is sufficient to make life coherent, not the spiritual narrative, not the scientific narrative. right? Spirituality is not enough, science is not enough, religion is not enough, medicine and psychology are not enough. You need multiple narratives and more complex uh, hero systems. So if you have an emotional addiction, you might want to get checked out for ADHD, or if people have told you you might have ADHD, it's probably worth getting that, that checked out. Also worth getting an overnight sleep test, right? It's really hard to improve your life when you are compulsively acting out in some way where you can't trust yourself to act in your own best interest, and when you're not getting adequate sleep. So I went on modafinil in June of 2013. I had a prescription, and it it mildly helped me with my ADHD symptoms. I feel like I'm getting more help for my ADHD symptoms now by substituting Adderall for modafinil. Now, I'd love to get a more dramatic boost to my life by trying a higher dose of Adderall, but I'm grateful to miss out on the negative side effects with the just low 10 milligrams total a day dose. I might just hang out here a while. Excitement can wait. So I noticed uh, Bernard said on Twitter, how can you really appreciate the good days, your good health, your good company without the bad days, bad health, bad company? You take things for granted if you don't get the bad experiences. Well, no matter how much you improve your life, you will always have bad experiences and you will always take things for granted. There's no magic pass for leaving the human condition. Now, I have no history with abusing prescription medication. Uh, Many people do have a history and I noticed that those who were the most hostile to me trying Adderall are people with a history of abusing prescription medication. So some people, you know, abuse alcohol. Some people abuse drugs. Some people abuse, you know, dissident right material. Uh, some people abuse gambling. So I had to quit gambling in my senior year of high school because I ended up as my high school's bookie owing one acquaintance of mine about $1,400. And I realized, hey, this, this is way out of control. Uh, on the other hand, about 20 years ago, I was able to gamble without you know, much problem when someone else gave me the money to do it. All right. Someone wanted to go play the slot machines, wanted me to come with her, said, now I can't do it. I'm a gambling addict. She says, I'll give you $20. So I went, I gambled $20 on the slot machines with her money, and then I was able to walk away and quit. So there are probably some foods that I never eat because i find it easier to abstain from them to be moderate so we we have to know ourselves know know what things that we can you know indulge in without without going nuts and and which things we we can't participate in at all and let's get a little bit more here at Medium buzz
2: murdering more than 1300 people um and what's going on today in this in this hostage uh release it's just it's just it, beyond fathomable.
1: We'll go to Israel shortly for a live report. But joining us now to analyze the coverage in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason Magazine. And in San Diego, Laura Fink, a political analyst and CEO of Rebel Communications. So... Probably good news that this finally happened. It seemed like it was uh, delayed a couple hours, not as long as uh, the hostage release was delayed yesterday. But is the media's natural tendency to portray hostage releases as joyous? You have lives saved. You have families reunited. Uh, overshadowing what a savage act it is for Hamas to kidnap civilians.
3: Uh, you 're exactly right, and of course it 's very tempting to be celebratory about this because families are being reunited um, with people they feared were were dead or you know languishing mm. under horrific conditions so i, I think it 's okay to have some Um, recognition of this as good news for for those people and for their families but we still must be clear-eyed about what Hamas has done about where the blame lies and about the, the fact that any pause in fighting can benefit that terrorist organization that it cannot be trusted that it violated an existing ceasefire. That's what kicked off this this whole uh, this whole war was mm-hmm. Hamas's actions on October seventh. So as long as the media must continue to to you know explain th- these aren't two equal partners at some deal here. This is a terrorist organization that kidnapped people at a music festival, that shot them in their homes and right. at, in their cars and at bus stations, and I, there, we can make no excuse for that.
1: Could not agree more. One of the Israelis uh, released today also has Russian citizenship. So, Laura, Hamas holding up yesterday's release for hours, claiming Israel didn't send enough humanitarian aid to Gaza before backing off, kind of manipulating the coverage as well as the family's emotions.
3: Well, Hamas from day one from even pre-day one, has sought to manipulate emotions. We saw that with the fighters uh, pretending that they were exclusively capturing and killing militants and soldiers on the side.
0: Okay, I've really enjoyed some uh, Sam Vaknan videos and uh, just checking out the chat. Elliot says, Do I have more or less trouble falling and uh, staying asleep? I notice no difference in my sleep. So I'm not the greatest sleeper. And I just don't notice any difference on this low dose of Adderall. All right, uh, I've been listening to some Sam Vaknan videos and uh, found them quite thought-provoking. And
4: experience this external shock. Israel reacted the way any traumatized individual does. It promulgated delusional goals. And having promulgated delusional goals for its invasion... Israel then dawdled
0: for three Okay, I think we're touching here on a a key left-right difference. So let's say Israel has the goal of punishing Hamas for its terror attack on Israel October 7. Is that a delusional goal? No, I don't think it's a delusional goal. So if you're on the right, generally speaking, you're going to be much more at ease with regarding punishment for bad behavior, so appropriate levels of punishment for bad behavior as a good thing in and of itself. If you're on the left, you're going to be much more likely to be skeptical of punishment as a good thing in and of itself. Rather, if you're on the left, you're going to much more likely regard punishment as as whether or not it has a therapeutic effect. While if you're on the right, you'll much more likely be at ease and regard punishment, appropriate levels of punishment for bad behavior as a good thing in and of itself. So if Israel is punishing Hamas right now and punishing Hamas supporters, is that a delusional goal? I don't think that's a delusional goal. I think I am on the right. I regard appropriate levels of punishment for bad behavior as a good thing in and of itself even if it does not lead to therapeutic ends. So I think that's a, a key left-right uh, difference.
4: Three ...unnecessary and costly weeks before it mastered the courage and the determination to penetrate the aerially devastated Gaza, Gaza Strip. And then, having invaded the Gaza Strip, a stream of triumphant messages followed the ground invasion. Alas, the reality and self-congratulatory propaganda rarely meet in actuality only two to four percent or three percent of hamas's fighting force and tunnels have been destroyed yes you've heard correctly two to three percent hamas is even more present in the south near the egyptian border it is more present there than in the much bombarded and invaded north
0: so let's say that's accurate that Israel's only killed 2 to 3% of Hamas's total number of fighters is is that uh makes does that make Israel's invasion and Israel's retaliation uh pointless or worthless? Doesn't to me. I mean normally don't you have to commit an average of like 8 felonies before you ever get caught and convicted of one? So the the US punishment for people who commit felonies that yeah, is Fairly, uh, on a fairly similar level to what's purported to be Israel's level of punishment of uh, Hamas here. Hamas is still
4: firing rockets on Israel. Hamas is still holding on to hostages. Hamas is negotiating brazenly for the release of the women of, and the children among the hostages in exchange for what amounts
0: to a assist- How exaggerated is the Gaza body count by the Gaza Department of Health? I don't think it's a vast exaggeration. All right. I, I would say probably 50% would be the max, but I don't think it's vastly exaggerated. Ceasefire. In short,
4: Hamas is far from being intimidated or definitely far from capitulating. Hamas is taunting Israel daily.
0: Why Why is Hamas taunting Israel daily? Because it can, right? When you hate someone and you have the ability to taunt them daily, you will. Hamas has the stronger hand in these hostage negotiations because Hamas has Israeli captives and Israel doesn't have any Hamas captives that it can trade. So the strong take what they want, the weak endure what they must. In this particular bargaining, Israel is in the much weaker position.
4: International diplomatic support for Israel is being sorely tested tested by what is beginning to be widely perceived as Israel's campaign of collective punishment. A war crime, may I remind you? Anti-Semitism?
0: So it's thrown around all the time that uh, Israel's committing war crimes in Gaza. It, it, it's by no means definitive that that is happening. All right, just having a disproportionate uh, body count is, is not a war crime. It right? is not at all clear that Israel is committing war crimes. Now, I absolutely believe you can make a strong case that Israel is committing war crimes in Gaza. And I... Believe that you can equally make a strong case that Israel is not committing war crimes in Gaza. I'm just making the point that those who definitively proclaim either way that Israel is or isn't committing war crimes in Gaza, I, I don't think they have a solid you know, ground to stand on.
4: Is rife globally and public opinion. Is decidedly pro-Palestinian. The underdog is always favoured. Hamas's own offences. Hamas's own crimes are swept under the social media collective carpet. So what is Israel to do? Having backed itself into a corner, the only thing Israel can do and should do is to declare victory and negotiate a ceasefire, replete with the release of all the civilian hostages held by various militant and Islamist groups in Gaza, extending the
0: war. war. So I enjoy Sam Bacchner, but Sam Bacchner is fundamentally a man of the left. I am fundamentally a man of the right, so my right-wing impulses are that you should punish people who do bad things and that that's a worthy goal in and of itself. Sam Vachman has a much more therapeutic approach. He doesn't believe that punishment in and of itself is a worthy thing, hence he is much more hostile to Israel's war in Gaza.
4: To the southern part of Gaza may net a few dead Hamas leaders. Yes,
0: many Hamas leaders
4: would die. But this has been tried before. This has been tried before multiple times, and it never worked. It never led anywhere.
0: The cup is- it never worked. Well, if you're right wing and you believe that punishing bad people for doing bad things is a worthy goal in and of itself, then you are fulfilling your hero system. You are acting out out of your view of the world and how it should work by punishing people who are doing evil things, and that works for that right wing hero system. Sam Vaknin has a left-wing hero system, and so he is much more hostile to the entire idea of punishment, including collective punishment. Now, the world overwhelmingly operates in a collective fashion, right? If I walk down the street wearing a yarmulke, people will tend to associate me with you know, everything that they know and feel about Jews, even though I'm an individual, right? I'm primarily an individual. I'm not primarily a representative of the Jewish people. I could you know, try to hold to that Anglo point of view but the way the world works is that we see people collectively we don't primarily see black people or Jewish people or Muslim people or Christian people or white people as individuals we primarily see them as representatives of groups and we then transfer onto them everything that we think and feel about the group that they are a member of now Maybe it'd be better if we saw people as individuals. There are many advantages to that, but it's not how the world works. Right? The way the world works is that we're not primarily individuals born with inalienable rights. We are primarily born as members of tribes. And you know whatever rights and responsibilities, whatever assets and deficits that come with belonging to our tribe, those are automatically transcribed onto us.
4: Habitating Hamas is meaningless because it grows a new head. There's a fair chance of cool heads prev- prevailing, unfortunately.
0: It's inevitable that, that there will be Hamas like groups coming out of the Gaza Strip as long as the Gaza Strip is essentially ruled by Israel. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you don't go in there and try to kill those who m- murdered your people in southern Israel if you believe that punishment's a good thing in and of itself. Now, even if you believe punishment's a good thing in and of itself, That does not mean you should ignore what are the consequences of what you're doing. So the consequences of what you're doing is more pain and suffering for your side with no accompanying benefit, then you need to rethink your strategy. So even if punishment's good in and of itself, it doesn't mean you automatically pursue it if the end result is bad for your team.
4: Israel is led by a kleptocracy, kleptocracy of grandiose malignant narcissists and petty criminals, immured in fantasies. And
0: they're led so when I, when my sister bought me this shirt and I started wearing it, I got so many compliments. I got so many compliments that I immediately went onto to Amazon and I bought this shirt in other colors. So pretty much every time I wear a collared shirt, I'm wearing this type of shirt just in different colors. I've never gotten compliments on any other of my shirts, right? It's only this shirt and this color. I consistently get compliments for this shirt in this color. I never get compliments for any other color of this type of shirt. So the chat says, know that when Luke wears a blue shirt, it makes him appear more open and trustworthy. Know that he also (laughs) knows this. But Benjamin
4: Netanyahu, whose only priority is and always has been Benjamin Netanyahu. The political echelons in Israel are estranged from the people and much hated and resented. Israel is actually in the throes of a slow motion Simmering, civil war. The military arm of...
0: Well, right now, Israel appears amazingly united. Right? say with Iran. Iran might look like it's in a slow-motion civil war, but if the U.S. was to directly attack Iran, Iran would suddenly become united. So when you attack a nation like Hamas did against Israel on October 7, you simultaneously unite that nation.
4: ...Hamas, on the other side of the equation. Because we are talking now about Can we find any reasonable, rational, cool-headed person to stop this madness? Well, not on the Israeli side. What about Hamas? The military arm of Hamas is a fanatical and tyrannical death cult. Death cult. Headed by arch psychopaths and serial killers who propagate their own brand of...
0: Is it true that there's absolutely nobody in Israel who can lead the country in a positive direction? I find that hard to believe. I I don't think that, you know, Israeli is just constitutionally incapable of finding a positive direction forward. Fake
4: for Islam. One example, sinwar. The political leadership is saner, but it is equally trapped in fantasies of revenge and restoration. Both sides live in fantasy land. Both sides have lost their reality testing And yet, unlike Al-Qaeda, unlike ISIS, and much like Hezbollah, Hamas is supported by 31 to 53% of the Palestinian population, who have little left to lose.
0: Okay, that's a very interesting perspective. So, unlike ISIS and unlike Al-Qaeda, Hamas and Hezbollah enjoy significant popular support. I, I... I hadn't heard it phrased that clearly. If that's true, that's significant. Okay, so the type of shirt that I'm, I'm wearing is a Van hewsen men's dress shirt fitted poplin solid. So I've got it in about uh, 10 different colors.
4: Additionally, both Hamas and Hezbollah are numerous, about 150,000 warriors, fighters combined. Both outfits well trained and well equipped. I think that Hamas and Hezbollah combined are a definite match to the IDF's best. They, they are definitely going to give the Israeli Defense Forces a run for their money. It is therefore impossible to exterminate Hamas the way the West has dealt with ISIS, for instance, because ISIS had no support in the population. It imposed itself of the population. That's not the case with Hamas, which is essentially a grassroots operation. Many on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict now say that the only solution to the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis, a conflict that has been going on since 1882, by the way. So many voices on both in both camps are now saying that the only solution is ethnic cleansing. One of these two peoples has to ethnically cleanse the other. Either the Jews ethnically cleanse the Palestinians or the Palestinians ethnically cleanse
0: the Israelites. So that sounds absolutely horrible, but it might also be true. You know, a lot of absolutely horrible things are also true. There was a modern Orthodox professor in Israel who made an offhanded remark that the only way to stop terrorism would be to, as a matter of routine, find the family, the relatives, the closest friends of terrorists, and then rape them. And... Knowing that this would be the fate of your family and friends, that would be a significant deterrent to terrorists. Now, that that professor was shamed and ostracized and condemned, it might be he also spoke the truth. So there are a lot of harsh, harsh, awful-sounding truths in life, and it may be true that you know such a, a reprogram is the only way to deter terrorists. I'm not saying it is, but I'm just saying it may be. And ethnic cleansing may be the only way to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. I'm not saying it is, but it may be. And if these things are true, then we should embrace truth in all its forms, even the ugly expression.
4: There's no other solution. So um, the revived idea of transfer on the Israeli side and Palestine from the river to to the sea On the Arab side, these are the expressions, genocidal expressions of desperation. Because what have you, the two states solution is a pipe dream. It's totally non-implementable, deranged. (laughs) Any name, just look at the map. There's no way to connect the West Bank with Gaza without dissecting and disemboweling Israel. Israel will never agree to this. There's 700,000 settlers in the West Bank. What are we going to do? What is Israel going to do with them?
0: Yes, there, there are dangerous truths. So there can be all sorts of truths that one should be perhaps uh, very reluctant to say publicly. Also, depending upon your social position, the more prestigious your social position, all right, the more precarious, the, the more careful you have to be in what you say. So I agree with the chat. There are, there are dangerous truths.
4: And how can Israel safeguard against terrorism once these two parts have combined into a state? So the two-state solution is, again, a pipe dream, an American pipe dream pro- probably. The one-state solution is, of course, totally untenable because if Israel were to agree to the incorporation of all Palestinians as equal citizens, it would, it would cease to be Jewish. And if it would not agree to their incorporation, it would cease to be democratic. So it seems the only solution is to throw all the Jews to the sea as the palestinians have been demanding since 1936 actually or to transfer all the palestinians to jordan or a similar country as many israelis have been suggesting since 1948 both parties maintain maximal positions and victimhood grievances both parties insist on possessing 100 of the territory of palestine or israel depending which camp you belong to
0: and Curious Gazelle notes that uh, Sam Vakman is a self-confessed narcissist and a narcissism researcher. Yes. So you can have personality disorders and still make contributions to public discourse. I certainly hope so because I've got you know, my share of personality disorders more than my share of personality disorders. I'd sure like to hope that even in my highly flawed state that I can still make a, a contribution to public discourse.
4: And currently, Israel is poised to exact revenge on Gazans for the October 7th atrocities. It fervently wishes to destroy the Hamas. But even if, implausibly, Israel were to succeed, Hamas is the symptom. Hamas is not the disease. The disease is the Israeli occupation.
0: Yes, Hamas is the symptom, but sometimes it's worth it just going after a symptom, right? If you've got a bad headache, and a cup of coffee cures it. Or if you're having a problem sleeping and, say, a gram of magnesium at night helps you to overcome this problem. Or a new pillow helps you to overcome this problem. Yes, I totally agree that Hamas is the symptom more than the problem. But it is worth it many times to go after symptoms.
4: Of Territories with millions of Palestinians. If Israel is successful at eradicating Hamas, another Hamas will come, will come forward.
0: Without a doubt. Right, If Israel eradicates Hamas, another Hamas-like organization will come about. That doesn't mean that it is useless eradicating Hamas if you believe that punishment for bad behavior is in and of itself a good thing.
4: Another resistance or terrorist organization will take its place. Hamas is a new phenomenon. It's been established in the 80s. It's an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. It's, it's, it's been long preceded by the likes of Fatah and others. So it's just one in a long chain of organizations, the first one of which can be traced back to the 1930s. So the same applies to Hezbollah, of course, even more so. There's no way to eradicate the popular wish. The popular wish of the Palestinians is reified in this organization.
0: Okay, there, there does seem to be evidence that Hamas enjoys a great deal of support. But what is its overall standing with the Palestinian people? I I also see a lot of polling evidence that overall in Gaza, Hamas has a much more negative reputation than positive. I suspect it's also true in Lebanon that Hezbollah overwhelmingly has a more negative reputation than positive. So both Hezbollah and Hamas enjoy significant support, but they enjoy also more than significant levels of uh, opposition.
4: Palestinians regard the Israelis as colonizing invaders, as the modern modern, uh, reincarnation of the crusaders in the 12th and 13th centuries. So, the Palestinians say, most Palestinians say, that Israel, Israel has been created in sin, the sin of colonialism.
0: Is there... Any nation that is not being created in sin, you know, probably, all right, Australia and New Zealand, you know, emerged out of the second enlightenment. They didn't have to fight a war for their own independence, but dozens upon dozens of nations have been created through conflict. Does this make them illegitimate? If so, there are probably 60, 80, 100 different nation states in the world that you'd have to say are illegitimate, including Pakistan, right? Pakistan emerged out of a, a civil war within India. So, It's very common to have nations created in in sin. And if you have, say, a classical Christian understanding that lust is sin, then almost every single human was created through lust, right? I suspect that most people are not thinking about God when they conceive their children. So it may well be that most nation states are conceived in sin, that 99% of human beings are conceived in sin, Does this make 99% of people and 80 different uh, odd nation states illegitimate simply because they were conceived in sin? I don't think so.
4: Now, out of expediency, some Palestinians have accepted Israel's right to exist. But deep inside, they perceive this as a temporary pause in a war that may last for centuries and that will end inevitably with an Arab victory. Many people say that this is a religious war. It's partly true, the vast majority of operators.
0: Now, will the Arab-Israeli conflict inevitably end in an Arab victory? Maybe, because Israel only has to make a mistake once, right? It's, it's such a tiny country with so little strategic depth that uh, it just takes one mistake. So imagine if you had to live your life where if you made one significant mistake, your life was over, right? You would not be expected to have a long lifespan. So this may well be correct. Obviously, as a strong Zionist, I hope it's not true.
4: Terrorists, activists, <clears throat> politicians, thinkers are Muslims. But there's been a hefty hefty, and consequential presence of Christian Arabs, especially among the terrorist groups in the 70s. So it wouldn't be 100% correct to cast it in terms of religious conflict. Or a clash of civilizations no it's a simple war over resources it's a conflict over territory the jews the israelis feel that they are with a back to the wall having endured the holocaust in europe they have nowhere to go nowhere left to go israel is the last stand israel is the modern masada and the palestinians feel that it is unfair that they have been rendered
0: and uh, Curious Gazelle makes a great comment. Yes, but uh, Sam Vacton's narcissism is blinding him. He's acting like his proposals are brand new when they are, you know, a common, well-known, existing strategy. Well, I mean, I- I'm sure my own narcissism blinds me. I get up and do all sorts of live streams where I probably contribute very little, if anything, to to the public discourse. But I have an exaggerated sense of the importance of what I'm saying. I have an exaggerated sense of the profundity the novelty of my own insights, right? I, I come to these live streams and I think that I've got something new, provocative, important to say when it's very likely been said by 5,000 people wiser and smarter than me. So there is probably some some level of narcissism in certain contexts, which is adaptive, All right, It enables me to you know, get up and do a live stream, convinced that I've got something important and valuable and beautiful and truthful to give to the world, and I am undoubtedly frequently, usually, you know, greatly exaggerating the novelty and profundity and beauty and truth of my own insights. I'm sure that's true for Sam Vaknin as well. I'm sure it's true for most live streamers. Internally
4: displaced, wrongly called refugees. By the way, technically they're not refugees. They're internally displaced. They've been some of them, not all of them. Some of them of them have been have been expelled from their own villages and. Have had to give up on their lands and houses. Others left voluntarily. It's important to mention. I refer you to the magisterial works by Benny Morris. Israel is a paper tiger.
0: And Curious Gazelle corrects me. She said, "Not true. Look forward. No civil war led to the creation of Pakistan. It was a democratic vote. As a consequence of partition, violence did take place. Well, hundreds of thousands of people were killed." as a result of the partition of uh, Pakistan and India. So I'll just leave it at that. I'll take it for granted that you are accurate that uh, the creation of Pakistan was the result of a democratic vote rather than a civil war. Maybe we're both true. Maybe there was both an element of civil war and a democratic vote, and they both had a profound impact on the creation of Pakistan.
4: The Israeli Defense Force is in bad shape, having having endured budget cuts and worse, internal strife between left and right, religious and secular. So, it's-
0: so I often have people ask me, don't you wish you had more viewers? And yes, I, I wish I had uh, more viewers, but I- I'm not willing to sell out, generally speaking, to get more viewers. And I've experimented with that in the past, like giving people what they want, you know, going for the easy, controversial, attention-grabbing, visceral type of streams filled with you know, trash talking and blood sports. So the more visceral the debate, the more trash talking and blood sport on your channel, the more views you get. But the longer I've been doing this, the more I want to minimize the chances that what I say and do and offer and create and broadcast on this stream hurts people's lives, try to maximize the opportunities that what I have to say, if it has any effect on someone, it's a positive effect. And it's more difficult to create a widely watched, stream that's good for you than a trashy stream that's that's bad for you so what's the highest number of live viewers several times i've had around a thousand including for the uh, jim goad saturday night massacre
4: it's in bad shape similar to the russian army these are paper tigers. should israel be confronted with aggression on several fronts lebanon syria west bank gaza Israel will be defeated. He does not have the capacity to prevail. And the Americans... Are-
0: Is that true? Right? Is Israel as weak as he says? I suspect Israel's in a stronger position than this. But he's saying that Sam Vaknin has said several times over the past six weeks that Israel cannot win a two-front war, let alone a three-front war. I suspect Israel could simultaneously defeat Hamas and Hezbollah. But uh, maybe, maybe he's correct. Maybe the IDF is weaker. Maybe Israel is weaker than I expected. I find this a provocative point of view here by Vaknin, which is why I'm playing it. Uh, it's something that I think about. It's an open question for me. Is Israel as weak as Sam Vaknin describes here? So
4: we're well aware of these facts. They are aware of Israel's frailty, and this is why the Americans are moving military assets, substantial military assets, into this region, rather than, for example, into the South China Sea. Iran's potential involvement may lead to an escalation of this local conflict to a regional one akin to Vietnam. Both parties are committing war crimes against civilians habitually. Acts of terrorism, on the one hand, are met with acts of state terrorism. So neither side is a saint there is a chance but there is a chance that israel's actions may force hezbollah to get involved And israel's disproportionate reactions to hezbollah's initial measured provocations was unwise the idea that this is the time to get rid of all of israel's enemies is based on a delusional fantastic grandiose inflated extreme misperception of
0: Israel. wait what if Israel can use this time to dramatically diminish Hezbollah, right? Is it really in Israel's best interest to live with a Hezbollah? It's got something like 150,000 to 200,000 missiles aimed at Israel, when this might be an opportunity to destroy Hezbollah?
4: Israel's real power. I don't know what these political and military leaders are on, but whatever they're on, they should stop taking it because it is distorting seriously the judgments and ability to um, gauge reality properly. Syria may also support Hezbollah sporadically.
0: So, I often hear rhetoric that you can't negotiate with terrorists, you shouldn't negotiate with terrorists. I think Israel's probably doing the right thing here negotiating the release of hostages in exchange for a ceasefire with Hamas. Uh, I mean, the, the most valuable deals you can make are with your keenest enemies. So, yeah, there's a time and a place to negotiate with your enemy and to negotiate with terrorists. And this is, seems to me an adaptive negotiation with terrorists as Israel you know, reaches some kind of accord here with the Mars via Qatar. As
4: might the Iran-backed militias there and in Iraq. I personally doubt this conflict will involve any other actors. The Palestinians have alienated literally all their supporters over the years. Quite a feat, if you ask me
0: yeah that's an interesting point i mean the palestinians have overwhelmingly alienated all their potential backers and so this conflict may not escalate right i mean egypt and saudi arabia probably hate hamas and have contempt for for gazans more than israel does
4: Palestinians a political diplomatic and military orphans they're pawns in the hands of of uh, the likes of qatar or israel or iran But luckily for Hamas, its conflict with Israel is just the latest piece in a much bigger political realignment. With China's acquiescence, and then with China's help, directly and indirectly through North Korea, Russia has transformed its invasion of Ukraine into a proxy war with the West. And this led to an escalation in conflicts along the fault lines between East and West all over the world, including the Middle East, and of course, shortly, Taiwan. We are in the throes. Of a global reordering of power similar to the period in the 1950s and 1960s when the West tried to contain both the USSR and Communist China but now the United States is a much diminished and spent force it is polarized it is paralyzed its democracy is threatened from within it doesn't even have a regular budget only stopgap ones the USA can scarcely provide military aid to more than two allies or proxies at any given time.
0: So, is this true? This is a trope I, I constantly hear among pundits that the West is an unreliable ally. As opposed to whom? As opposed to Russia, as opposed to China, as opposed to Guatemala or Canada or Mexico or Pakistan? Like, who's a more reliable ally? I mean, betrayal. The experience of betrayal is inevitable in all relationships, including international ones between nation states. As soon as you form any connection, right, whether it's with another individual or one state with another state, you then generate fantasies about the other party and their priorities, fantasies that will inevitably be dashed, right? It's built into the human condition to imagine that the world and other people and that oneself is more stable than we really are. So, to reduce our anxiety, we believe all sorts of things that are not true such as the world is a much safer place than it really is, that our friends are better people than they really are, that we are more reliable than we really are. We like to believe that there's an essential nature to ourselves and to others, that there's a true self. When in reality, we're all different in different circumstances. Often the situation will have much more influence on our behavior than our supposedly innate personality. We will always tend to explain away our friends' bad behavior and our own bad behavior, as being not truly reflective of who we really are. We all tend to be quite quick to make excuses for ourselves and for our friends to avoid having to change our minds because changing our minds is embarrassing and taxing. So betrayal is simply the hyperbolic term that we give to others having different priorities from what we expected. Like if if your best friend sleeps with your wife, you may well call that a betrayal of your friendship. But for your friend, he was not primarily betraying your friendship in all likelihood. In all likelihood, he was placing his relationship with your wife as a higher priority, as a higher level of importance for him than his relationship with you. His priorities were different from what you expected, right? You can knock yourself out at work, right? You can do the work of three men, and then you might get fired because in the process of you know trying to accomplish so much, in the process of your zeal for productivity, you may not have crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's and your employer may decide as a result that uh, wants to get rid of you and you feel betrayed because your employer has, has different priorities than what you expected. So the United States is you know, changing its relationship with Ukraine and Israel. This is widely reported over the past few weeks that the U.S. is becoming less supportive of Ukraine and Israel, if true. This is not primarily an indictment of the fickleness of America or the fickleness of the West. It's simply a painful acknowledgement of reality that previous levels of American support for these countries was not aligned with America's best interests. Right? When America withdrew its forces from Afghanistan in August of 2021, it looked bad, but it's still probably in America's best interests. Right? There are many times in life when it's best to leave in a shambolic way. Than to try to hang around and preserve your dignity right america's influence does not ultimately depend upon appearances rather america's influence springs from america's military and economic might so i think the biden administration has been absolutely reckless by vastly increasing our chances of getting into war with russia war with iran and war with china right but even the Biden administration and its voluminous support for Ukraine is seeking to dial that back in the face of harsh reality. Joe Biden has long been a very strong supporter of Israel, but now, you know, circumstances are changing so that he has to recalibrate and and readapt that. So I don't agree with Sam Vakten here that the West is a particularly fickle ally. I think, you know, everybody has to constantly reassess their priorities when circumstances change, right? When We are in a different situation. We behave differently.
4: NATO is underfunded and under-trained as Ukraine and Israel. I'm going to find out very soon. The West is not a reliable or long-term ally. The axis of resistance, Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, Hamas, the axis of resistance is becoming aware of the fact that the West is not what it used to be that it is a facade a Potemkin force power in any fight this fight between west and east taking place on multiple fronts all over the world is the only thing that is still sustaining Um, phenomena such as Hamas and Hezbollah the emergence of the BRICS group of countries, BRICS, used to be China, Russia, South Africa, Brazil, now they've invited Iran to join, imagine, it's a slap in the face of the United States, so exactly as the United States will not let Israel fall, the axis of resistance, backed by the likes of China and Russia and so on, will not let its own soldiers, Hamas, Hezbollah, it will not let them fall. This is a war by proxy. And Israel found itself, perhaps, for the first time in its existence, a total, unmitigated, utter pawn in a chess game, not able, in effect, to influence its fate and destiny, not able to make independent decisions, almost at all.
0: Okay, I enjoyed the provocation of that uh, Sam, Sam Backman video. And uh, looking at the chat, Curious Gazelle says, Luke, uh, you aren't a narcissist. Come off it. The only narcissism you've demonstrated is in using a personal analogy to defend others. A true narcissist would defend oneself using an analogy to others. If they can do it, why can't I? So for most people, including myself, narcissism is a state more than a condition. Dr. Craig Malkin from Harvard Medical School said that. And I really like it all right, there there are certain states that I, I get into where I'm just particularly needy of admiration and, you know, come, come look at me, listen to me, pay attention to me. And for most people, that's what narcissism is. It is a state. It is a state in a particular circumstance. It's not their overall condition. So, if you have a narcissistic response to certain conditions, all right, you want people to look at you, such as when you're doing a live stream, that's probably a healthy, adaptive response to reality. Uh, if you're doing mundane work and you really need people to pay attention and praise your mundane work, then that would be a maladaptive expression of narcissism. So I've had the painful experience often of breaking into conversations where I was not wanted they didn't want me around and they didn't want me interrupting or interjecting or ejaculating into their conversation and so to the extent that i was driven by narcissism that was maladaptive maybe it was my adhd and verbal impulsivity but for me it's one of the most sickening feelings to realize that i have ejaculated into a conversation where my ejaculations are not considered you know worthy where People don't want me to ejaculate my thoughts all over them, All right, That is like, oh, no, I just hate that feeling where I, I've interposed myself into a conversation where I, I'm not wanted. It's just like, how could I be that needy? How could I be that socially maladroit? It's like, oh, it's such an icky feeling. It's like when you ask out a girl who's never shown any interest in you and she just immediately rejects you, right? the why is the thing is to see if you know, she has any interest in you. She's displayed what is IOIs, in, indicators of interest. Does she ask you questions beyond what is polite and ordinary? Does she touch you when she speaks to you? Does she angle away from other people towards you? Does she primp when she's listening to you? Does she you know apply makeup or primp with her hair? All right. Is she touching you unnecessarily? All right. If she's showing some indicators of interest, then it, it's worth trying to escalate the situation. But if people don't want you, and you're interposing yourself all over them, that's just humiliation. It just feels absolutely awful. And let's have a look at the chat. Curious Gazelle says, the global sympathies toward the Palestinians are coming from universal leftists. If you negotiate with Hamas, you no longer will be criticized by the international left. and uh, curious says a, a two state solution could be manifested gaza could be the palestinian state run by rich sharia compliant leaders crash says us ukraine proves that europe must develop its own strategic initiative curious says the idf israel establishment is stuck in a rut convincing them to shake hands with hamas for a long term goal would be hard short termism is the bane of all things so I read an article in the Washington Post yesterday that, that blew my mind. Now, I'm, I'm a strong Zionist, right? I, I believe very strongly in the right of, of Jews to a Jewish state in the, their historical homeland. And one of the major talking points that I've heard from my side is that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, is a you know, particularly righteous defense force. And one example of this is that they rarely rape but then in this Washington Post article I read yesterday, apparently prior to the October 7 Hamas attack on southern Israel, Palestinians have rarely raped Israelis. I didn't, I didn't know that. So here's the Washington Post article. So some forces in the Middle East, including those of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the Islamic State have used systematic rape as a weapon. Islamic State means ISIS. But many armed groups consider the act taboo, even in war. The practice has never been used systematically in the Arab-Palestinian conflict, according to experts. Did you know that? I would have expected both sides to have raped. Many pundits routinely proclaim the the non-rapey nature of the IDF, but I don't recall any of these pundits noting that Palestinians have largely abstained from this behavior as well in their battle against Israel. And I when I mentioned this to my Zionist friends, they, they tend to angrily, you know, deny this, that uh, Palestinians have also rarely committed rape against Israeli. So Sam Sam Vaknan claims that the Hamas fighters who attacked Israel on October seventh were highly disciplined and that the atrocities and the rapes were not committed by Hamas soldiers. Instead they were they were committed by you know, Gazans who just followed Hamas, you know, into southern Israel, and and then went on to rape and commit torture. So my intuition says that uh, higher IQ people are more capable of empathy, because empathy is a form of abstract thought. IQ essentially measures your capacity for abstract thought. So while not all high IQ people are empathic, they just have a greater capacity for empathy. And when you've got a large enough group of people with the advanced capacity for empathy, I would expect more of them to engage in empathic behavior than low IQ groups who have less capacity for abstract thought, including less capacity for empathy. So I would expect, on average, higher IQ groups will be less likely to commit rape than lower IQ groups. That's my bet. Tucker Carlson is still producing... Some good shows, right? Tucker Carlson may well be an essential part of a balanced media diet. Now, I have tons of criticism of Tucker Carlson. I think half the stuff he does is is crap. I think he often pushes things that is just simply not true. Uh, But uh, I I agree with many of the criticisms of Tucker Carlson uh, by, by his critics. Uh, I just read Brian Stelter's new book about Tucker Carlson on Fox News. It's called A Network of Lies. And Brian Stelter has you know, 70-odd, very accurate criticisms of Tucker Carlson, which I think are fair and important. Uh, Tucker Carlson is a demagogue, but he's highly entertaining, highly amusing, and he also makes some important points. And this is a recent Tucker Carlson show with Glenn Greenwald. And there's some really good material in there. Two defining tragedies
5: of our age, the war in Ukraine and the presidency of Joe Biden are finally both inevitably coming to an end. Both have outlived their usefulness. To assess what this means for the rest of us and who should be taking a victory lap, Glenn Greenwald, host of System Update on Rumble, joins us now. Glenn, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, So the war in Ukraine, which some have pointed out for nearly two years now, was never going to be won by Ukraine since... Russia has a population of over 100 million more people, is finally, apparently, headed for peace talks. NATO seems to have acknowledged that this is not actually going to work. What do you make of that?
2: I think it's important to go back and remember what was said at the beginning, the propagandistic framework, not to take credit or assign blame, but to realize how often we're deceived by exactly the same emotionally manipulative tactics. We were told by the people who wanted the U.S. involved in this war, not just involved in it, but to fuel it, to prevent diplomatic negotiations from taking place with the possibility of ending the war very early on. We were told by those people that they were so concerned about Ukrainians and so concerned about Ukraine that the United States had to send tens of billions of dollars over there and all sorts of weaponry and flood the country with arms in order to protect Ukrainians. And anybody, like the two of us and other people, who stood up and said, this isn't a good idea, this is going to be counterproductive, we were accused of not caring about the Ukrainians, of cheering for the Russians, when none of that was true. All along, the point was that there was no way Ukraine could possibly win a war against Russia, a country way larger, with a much better military, even if NATO is behind it. The only thing that is going to happen is that this war will be prolonged. Huge numbers of young Ukrainians and then older Ukrainians, not
0: people who volunteered, but who are Conscripts, Zelensky has been. So I, I think I agree 100% with the ideas expressed in this discussion between Tucker and Glenn. ...fighting with the conscript army since the beginning are going to die. And at the end, there's going to
2: be a negotiation that says that Russia will end up being able to... Uh, protect the part of Eastern Ukraine it believes had people in it who are largely Russian, Russian-speaking, ethnic Russians, who are being oppressed by Kiev. They will keep Crimea. There's no way for these maximalist war uh, aims ever to be achieved. And now here we are two years later, in part because the West is just tired of funding this war. The counteroffensive that we were all told would change everything was a tremendous disaster. They barely have any people left to fight. They're now dragging 45 and 50-year-olds off buses and sending them to the front. And the United States has a brand new war that it seems more excited over. And now they're finally telling the Ukrainians and so is, NATO, look, the gig is up. It's time for you to sit down at the negotiating table. And we're now in a position where NATO has to beg Russia to be happy to keep 20% of Ukraine, which is what they have controlled pretty much without any change for the last year or even year and a half as tens of billions of dollars were wasted and thousands upon thousands of lives were extinguished.
5: And I would argue it's even worse than that, since the Biden administration and our European allies provoked this war on purpose. They've known for 20 years that the red line for Russia was NATO expansion. Onto its borders, and they sent the vice president, Kamala Harris, to the Munich Security Conference two Februarys ago to tell Zelensky, we want you in NATO, knowing that this would provoke a war. I mean, I don't see any other way to read it.
2: Yeah. I mean, this idea that if you talk openly about providing a security relationship with Kiev or especially talk openly about allowing NATO to go right up to the most sensitive part of the Russian border by including Ukraine in the alliance, the idea that that would provoke an automatic war with Russia between Russia and Ukraine is something that Washington has known for decades. There's a famous memo in 2008 written by the current head of the CIA, Bill Burns, who wrote to Condoleezza Rice and other Bush administration officials who at the time were excited about expanding NATO eastward, about putting Ukraine in NATO. And he said, look, it's not just Putin. It's every single person in Moscow. Even the people who hate Putin, all Russians are united around the idea that any attempt to put Ukraine into NATO is an existential threat to Russia and they will have no choice but to invade Ukraine if we try. And they knew that.
0: Yeah, this is a point made most eloquently and originally by John Mearsheimer and completely agree here with Glenn Greenwald's analysis. All right, interesting story out of uh, the University of Southern California here. So, Here's the headline. Jewish professor at USC criticized Hamas while confronting pro-Palestinian students. He is now barred from campus. So until recently, USC professor John Strauss was mostly known for his research on the economics of developing countries with decades of fieldwork in Indonesia and China. That changed November 9, when John Strauss stopped before students staging a walkout in a protest calling for a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. A memorial to thousands of Palestinian civilians killed in the Israel-Hamas war. The economic professor's interactions with students that day ended with the 72-year-old Strauss, who is Jewish, declaring, Hamas are murderers. That's all they are. Everyone should be killed, and I hope they all are killed. And for that, he's been banned from the USC campus. He has to conduct all his classes by Zoom. I don't see anything reprehensible about those comments. What is so awful about uh, wishing that every member of a terrorist organization is killed? After 9-11, would it be considered heinous for Americans to say, I want every single member of al-Qaeda dead? I, I, I don't see a problem in that remark. Now, the more prestigious your position, such as university professor, that's a highly prestigious position, all right, the more vulnerable you are to cancellation, all right if he'd been a plumber or a landscaper or an independent businessman, he wouldn't be as vulnerable. so I think his comments were ill advised i don't think it's a good idea to get into arguments with people on the Middle East you know when you're walking around on a college campus, particularly when you're a professor there. And I don't think you should get into arguments in your workplace about hot button issues, so I think his his words were were ill advised but completely defensible, right? I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with wishing for, for the deaths of all members of a terrorist organization. I think it's outrageous that he's been banned from USC, but you can be 100% right and still be ill-advised, right? There's a basic California driving law, don't be dead right. So you can have the right of way, but sometimes if you insist on having the right of way, you and other people will end up dead, I remember once I was listening to pop music. Maybe is the fourth of my ADHD. I was having such a good time loudly listening to the music in my car that I, I went through a red light at about 70 miles an hour, and there were all these cars lined up to turn in front of me from, from uh, the, the freeway, Interstate 80, to, to turn onto Rockland Road, I think it was. But luckily, they did not insist on being dead right if they turned out in front of me and i was barreling down at 70 miles an hour now i could have killed a whole bunch of people I- including myself so insisting on being you know dead right is a really bad idea but his point just strikes me as as completely defensible whoops of course he-
2: okay here we go and they ignore those threats. And I absolutely think, Tucker, that, you know, one of the things that is, I think, the greatest fraud of this war is that the people who kept claiming they were so concerned about Ukrainians were, in fact, totally indifferent to the Ukrainians. They were willing to sacrifice Ukrainians and Ukraine at the altar of getting back at Russia, I think, in large part, because they wanted to extract vengeance against Russia for what they perceived to be Russia's role in helping Donald Trump win the 2016 election and causing Hillary Clinton to lose. And they were willing to sacrifice an entire country and to wipe out tens of thousands of lives of young people who didn't want to fight in In order to fulfill their political goal of extracting vengeance against Russia, weakening Russia, and they kept—they've been saying for the last several months as American support for this war is eroding. Oh, look at how great this war is! We don't have to lose any of our lives. We're just having Ukrainians die, and we're just spending a bunch of money. But no Americans are dying. Only Ukrainians for this goal of weakening Russia. They were the ones who didn't care about the Ukrainians. They saw Ukrainians as pawns that they were willing to sacrifice, and that's exactly what they did. It's really obscene.
5: This is almost a rhetorical question, but isn't this the point in the story where we pause? And the people who behaved in the way you just described, which is grotesque, where they apologize for what they did and apologize to the people they maligned by calling them Putin apologists or tools of the Kremlin. Or- or disloyal Americans,
2: isn't that kind of a necessary step in recovering from this disaster? It is, but that the problem with the biggest problem with our political media culture is that there is no accountability. So many of the loudest voices urging the United States get involved in this war and attacking and demonizing anybody who was opposed as being Russian agents or unpatriotic or whatever, were they didn't come from the same ideological camp. In many cases, they were literally the very same people who did exactly that. After 9-11, who, anybody who stood up and said, I'm against the Patriot Act, or I have concerns right. about NSA spying, or I don't think we should invade Iraq or drone bomb countries all over the world. The, world, the David Frums and the Bill Crystals and the Cheney family, those were the people standing up and saying, anyone opposed to our wars are unpatriotic, they're on the other side. And none of those people ever paid a price for what they did, lying the country into the war in Iraq, destroying a country of 26 million people that gave rise to ISIS. They, in fact, all got promoted. Jeffrey Goldberg helped sell the lie. He was one of the main people in the media selling the lie that Al Qaeda was responsible with Saddam Hussein for planning. 9-11 attack he's now the editor-in-chief of the atlantic they get promoted for these lies and so there won't be any accountability these very same people victoria newland are all still in power and they're going to continue to use these tactics because they never pay a price to the country they ended up they end up getting rewarded for it it's a very familiar template so their
5: real aims are domestic they use foreign conflicts to make change in the united states to make the country in fact less democratic but they use those conflicts abroad to divide the United States. So we're going to do this. We're going to spend all this money. We're going to imperil America's national security. And if you don't like it, then you are a tool of fill in the blanks. Saddam, Putin, Hamas. It it seems like a uniquely poisonous way of running a country and not at all good for the country.
2: No, I think that's exactly right. It it, it would be bad enough if the United States were just going around spending all of Americans' money to fuel foreign wars. But what they're doing at the same time with these foreign wars are using them as a pretext to erode the core constitutional and civic rights of American citizens here at home. So, when they wanted to launch the so-called War on Terror, they ushered in the Patriot Act that gave vast powers to the FBI and the CIA of all kinds of detention and surveillance powers. They empowered the NSA to spy on Americans without the warrants required by the Constitution. Newt Gingrich wanted to rewrite the First Amendment in order to usher in censorship measures in the name of the War on Terror. They did the same thing with the war in Ukraine. Some of the greatest censorship on big tech came from those people who were questioning NATO narratives, who were standing up and saying, I don't think these things are true. I don't think these things are wise. The EU made it illegal to even give RT a platform. So every single one of these wars results in fewer and fewer rights for Americans here at home. And now we're seeing the exact same thing, Tucker, with this insistence. And the Biden administration is fully on board in partnership with Republicans to provide billions and millions of dollars, not this time to Ukraine to fuel their war, but to Israel to fuel their war. And what we've been seeing from the people advocating that is this insistence that those who stand up and say, I'm not in support of what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. I don't think the United States should treat this war as our war. You don't have to agree with that or not. But there's so many efforts now to say people saying this should be censored. What they're saying is illegal. They're invoking all the theories that the liberal left have been invoking for years now to justify censorship of the views they dislike. Oh, this is inciting violence. This is going too far. This is hate speech. This is against a vulnerable minority group. And now we're seeing the same kind of erosion of free speech here in the United States on the part of Americans, because now there's another foreign war that's always Part of the equation,
0: the domestic aspect to it. The- yeah, some excellent points there made by Glenn Greenwald and uh, Tucker Carlson. So I, I found a commentator who I really enjoy his his comments on the uh, Israel-Hamas war in, in the Gaza Strip. I, this is this is the guy who, who I most I guess agree with, and uh, listening to him, you know, wrestle with all the complicated issues arising from this conflict. I I like how he does it. His his name is James Joyner, and he is a professor. He's probably centrist to center-left in his politics. He's a professor and head of security studies at the Marine Corps University's Command and Staff uh, College. He's a former Army officer, Desert Storm veteran, and his headline on one of his articles, he Blogs at OutsideTheBeltway.com, which is a favorite website of mine, OutsideTheBeltway.com. Israel, Hamas, and the laws of war. It's complicated. So he starts off uh, quoting one tweet. The asymmetry between the standard for Israeli conduct and Hamas conduct is revealing. Israel is held to an impossible standard where any killed civilians are immediately counted as war crimes and condemned. Hamas is held to no standard at all despite it being one long string of continuous and intentional war crimes and having an explicit goal to murder Jews. Somehow that is spun as resistance when Hamas is largely indistinguishable from the Nazis in terms of answering the Jewish question. So I think that's a sharp analysis. And then here's a related point by Michael Reynolds. Not that long ago, it was U.S. policy to respond to a nuclear attack by condemning the entire human race to extermination. The USSR tried to move missiles into Cuba back in 1962. We responded by threatening to annihilate the USSR, and if a billion or so people died, well, better dead than red, am I right? We're very good at telling others to turn the other cheek. The country that perpetrated the Trail of Tears is upset the Gazans have to walk south to avoid being caught in the crossfire. So I think those are good points. We do hold Israel to a higher standard than Hamas because, one, is a modern nation state and a signatory to treaties that make up international humanitarian law. The latter is a terrorist group. We hold 2020s Israel to a higher standard than 1830s America because we presume that humanity has evolved over that period, both in terms of our ability to kill one another and in terms of our legal and moral structures. But uh, that, that Israel's enemies don't feel the slightest compunction about violating the rules, right, doesn't necessarily alter Israel's obligations to follow those rules but it does make it much harder so the economist had a great long essay is Israel acting within the laws of war in Gaza and the economist makes this point that international law and specific rules that govern warfare such as the laws of armed conflict that's LOAC law of armed conflict also known as international humanitarian law IHL do give Israel considerable latitude to attack Hamas, according to various legal experts. So Article 51 of the United Nations Charter gives states the right of self-defense against armed attack, provided that, according to customary international law, force they use is necessary and proportionate. Now, remember, proportion doesn't mean that you can only use the same weaponry or kill the same number of people as you suffered. Proportion means that if your enemy is trying to kill you, you're entitled to kill your enemy. Now, your enemy may simply wield a knife. That doesn't mean you're only allowed to use a knife in response to an enemy intent on killing you. If your enemy wields a knife, you are entitled by the laws of war, by all that is necessary and proportionate, you are totally entitled to shoot to death that enemy. Proportionality does not mean symmetry in the type of weapons used or in the number of casualties caused. It means that the defending state can use as much force as is needed to address the threat. And no more. So Hamas is very clear. Its intention is to wipe out the Jewish state of Israel. Its intention is to murder Jewish Israelis. And you are entitled by the laws of war to do what you need to do to end that threat. Now, drawing a line is subjective, it is contentious. But the scale of Hamas's attack, its demonstrated intent, and proven capability means that invading Gaza, or even occupying Gaza temporarily to destroy Hamas is easy to justify legally. So it's not at all clear that Israel is just wholesale, you know, violating the you know, rules of uh, war. Back to Tucker. That,
2: that's more power in the government and takes away more and more rights from
5: Americans. What's so terrifying to me though, is that the right, the American political right, which really was through this kind of weird transformation that's happened over the past dozen years, has become the lone defenders of the first amendment. They've abandoned that in the last month, like instantly. So I think you could say, you know, I strongly support Israel. I strongly dislike Hamas. I'm, I'm rooting. For, maybe I think we should commit troops to the region. I mean, whatever. You can have any view you want. However, American citizens have a right to express their opinion, period. And that supersedes a- any other event in any other country. It's like that's a core right. And I don't hear many conservatives saying that. Uh, and so you sort of wonder, like, if they're not defending it, who will?
2: I mean, there are people who have built their careers, Tucker, over the last five, six years, standing up and saying, We can't have cancel culture. We can't have censorship. College students aren't entitled to feelings of safety. We don't censor in order to protect people from views they find threatening, mocking the notion that minority groups are vulnerable and we have to censor in order to protect them. Turn on a dime and now become the leading voice of saying, because American Jews feel unsafe, that's valid in a way that, say, claims from black people or LGBTs or Latinos aren't valid, and because of that, we need to censor. Fortunately, there have been some conservatives, influential ones, who have been quite consistent. Kansas Owens, for example, had a very public argument with Megan. Kelly, in which he was saying, we're not the left. We don't get people fired for their political views. We don't believe in using the law to silence people. There have been uh, Vivek Ramaswamy on your show. He just wrote an article in The Wall Street Journal saying we're not going to defeat Hamas through censorship or cancel culture in the United States. And I think the biggest example and the most important one, which is Fire.org, that became very popular among conservatives in the United States because they were defending the rights of free speech on campuses for conservative students at a time when the ACLU wouldn't, stood up and vehemently denounced Ron DeSantis for a grave direct attack on the First Amendment when he tried to ban a pro-Palestinian group on campus on the grounds that they're providing material support for Hamas, even though he doesn't claim they did anything other than express their views. And I think this is the point. You are allowed to stand up in the United States and say, I think the United States should bomb Iran into oblivion. I think we should turn Gaza into a parking lot. Lindsey Graham stands up every day and calls for violence of that kind, and he's protected by the First Amendment from doing so. You also, though, as an American, are allowed to stand up and say, I think Israel is at fault in this conflict because of the occupation and the blockade. I think that people in Palestine have a right to fight back. I think that violence is justified because Israel has become oppressive. You can think all those views are repulsive, but leave the question of what you think of those views to decide. No question, Americans have a right to express them. And there has been a concerted effort on the part of many conservatives, including many who have led the way in mocking claims of victimhood and and victimhood narratives by minority groups and the idea that people need to feel safe. They are now the ones turning around and saying, no, because of how dangerous this is, we need to ban it. We need to ban these protests. We need to ban student groups. We need to put people on no hire lists. The exact kind of tactics they spent five or six years up until a month ago aggressively denouncing, it, it's very dispiriting, even though it's not surprising, to the minute that they have views that they find offensive to turn for them to watch them and turn around and use all the same theories to say those views cannot be expressed. That is incredibly dangerous, because in the future, when conservatives want to complain about the censorship regime that has been implemented, who will possibly take them seriously after we just watch them, the minute there was an issue of great importance to them, which is Israel, turn around and call for censorship. Obviously, it's not a principle. If the only time you defend free speech is when it comes to views you agree with. Anybody can do that. That's easy to do. That's worthless. The only real task of whether you believe in free speech is whether you defend the right to express the views you find most offensive. And a lot of conservatives, not all, are woefully failing that test. I have to say, I am surprised. I, I was shocked by it. I am shocked by it. And I'm shocked not
5: just by how little they care about freedom of expression, but also about the emotion involved. So for the past, I don't know, 20 years, it's been a staple of demonstrations on college campuses to attack the United States. It's a garbage country. It was built on chattel slavery. It's fundamentally illegitimate. The New York Times devoted an entire year to telling us that the United States is a fundamentally racist country and it's, it's an awful, it's an immoral place fundamentally from, from its inception. And nobody said anything about it. Nobody stopped sending money to UPenn over that when they were attacking the U.S. or white people or none of that even
0: registered with anybody. But the second a foreign country gets criticized. Would any, any other public commentator have the, the courage to point out that, uh, yeah, white people are often singled out for dis- disproportionate uh, levels of vitriol and contempt. So good for Tucker. we got to shut it down. I mean, where's, where's the concern for the United States? Or is that
5: a stupid question?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I had Mike Johnson on my show, the new Speaker of the House, two months ago, and I walked away with a somewhat positive impression. And yet, yeah. I was amazed that you know we have this ritual in the United States. It's not very common. We elect a new Speaker. It's only happened fifty-six times in the whole history of our country. And the new Speaker sends up this Tribune and he gives a speech to try and tell Americans what his speakership will be about. And Mike Johnson had one opportunity to do that, and he said the very first thing we're going to do. And Americans are like, "What are you going to do for us? Are you going to end the fentanyl crisis? Are you going to keep drugs out of our country? Are you going to provide better jobs for us? Are you going to reindustrialize?" He said the very first thing. We are going to do is pass a bill to help our friend Israel. That's the
0: first thing we're going to do. Right. That, that's weird. Right. It, it's weird that in the United States, politicians generally feel that they have to essentially pledge loyalty to a foreign power to run for public office. That's, that's weird. To do.
2: And obviously, there are a lot of people in the United States who have great affinity for other countries. Rashid Tlaib right. has a Palestinian flag outside her office. A lot of people have the Ukrainian flag flying inside their house. And huge numbers of people have intense affinity for Israel, which is fine. You're allowed to have that. The problem becomes when you immediately abandon all of the principles that you claim to believe in in defense of this foreign country. And the only reason, Tucker, I say that I wasn't surprised is because I have noted many times before that the American right does seem willing to give up free speech soon as the issue is Israel. I think one of the most disturbing set of laws that we have that were enacted mostly by red state governors and red state legislatures, and they've been invalidated by federal courts, thankfully, on the grounds that they violate free speech, but Andrew Cuomo did it too, are laws that say... That if you want to work with the state, if you want to have a contract with our state, you have to sign a pledge vowing that you do not support a boycott of Israel. Otherwise, you are not hireable. You're allowed
0: to. I mean, that's that's absurd that uh, in many states. All right. You want to have a contract with the state. You have to pledge that you will not support uh, BDS against Israel, boycott, divest and and sanction Israel. It's it's an absurd limitation on speech. Support a boycott of any other country. You can boycott Peru, you can boycott
2: South Korea, or Russia, or China, whatever other country you want to boycott, that's totally fine. Boycott that. You're even allowed to boycott other states in your own country, you're allowed to harm that the economies means. and the businesses of your fellow of your citizens. Own country. And in yeah. fact, Andrew Cuomo, when he announced when he announced that he by executive order that if you support a boycott of Israel, you can't get hired by the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo, the very same one, issued by executive order boycotts of Indiana and North Carolina on the grounds that they had enacted bathroom bills for trans people that he found offensive. So there were a lot of red states and red state governors enacting these laws that say if you want to work with the state, you're free to boycott any other country or any other state in the United States. You just can't boycott Israel. And there's been a lot of those kinds of
0: yeah. And there's, there's another problem in our public discourse that uh, any support for you know free Palestine or Pal- support for the Palestinian people, support for Gaza, uh, condemnation of the number of you know civilian deaths in, in Gaza is somehow an expression of anti-Semitism. Right? I, I think that's completely absurd. Right? Just because you're You're pro-Palestine or you're concerned about the number of civilian deaths in in Gaza. doesn't make you anti-Semitic. And it is troubling that there have been more civilian deaths in six weeks of this Israel war against Hamas in Gaza than the last uh, 19 months of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's troubling. Now, uh, Israel does seem to be taking significant measures to try to minimize civilian death toll. It's a different situation. Gaza is much more densely packed than Ukraine, that uh, Hamas deliberately implants itself in places like hospitals and and schools, so Hamas is doing everything it can to increase uh, Hamas-Gazan civilian casualties, but still, a normal person is disturbed by the thousands of civilian deaths in Gaza that tolerance
2: for that sort of
0: thing because obviously the United States is a very pro-israel
2: country and it's a winning political issue among a lot of American Jews but also a ton of the American evangelicals or just national security hawks and there has been tolerance for erosion of free speech in the name of Israel before but nowhere to the extent that we're now seeing and I agree that it the the severity of it is surprising I I would like to think there's an even bigger
5: constituency for pro-america but there doesn't doesn't seem to be at least it's not represented uh, in the Congress so I have to ask about President Biden, these polls come out over the weekend showing that he's losing in a theoretical matchup among registered voters in five out of six swing states, the biggest swing states. It looks like if the election were held today, if not much changes, he would lose. And immediately you have David Axelrod, Bill Kristol, you know, pretty devoted Biden voters saying we need a new guy. What do you make of that polling? Do you think it reflects reality? And what do you think will happen to Biden?
2: I think the most amazing part about this, Tucker, is that The if if any leading American politician had even gotten near the possibility of an indictment ten years ago, the prospect of them running for high office would be instantly over. And here you have Donald Trump who has been indicted on felony charges in four different American jurisdictions, two state jurisdictions, two federal jurisdictions, and not only has it not harmed him, it actually has helped him in the polls for sure among Republican voters, his lead has expanded every time he's indicted, but also among American independents and even groups that traditionally support Democrats almost reflexively like black voters who 22% 22% of in this latest poll, and we've seen a similar polls say they would vote for Trump over Biden, and 42% of Latinos. And what this shows is that Americans have really come to the conclusion that our leading institutions of authority are radically corrupted. Our media outlets are radically corrupted. The Department of Justice and the legal system has been aggressively politicized. And so now Donald Trump is in a position where he's facing serious felony charges. I don't think they're serious in the sense that they're real, but they're serious in the sense that if he's convicted, he'll go to jail. And they're, they're felony charges. And yet his lead is expanding over Joe Biden, in part because people, I think, see the injustice of it. But also everybody can just look at Joe Biden and see that he is not a person capable of even managing his own life, much less the country. Yes. And that there's no cure for that. That's not going to get better. That's only going to get worse. And... What their strategy now is, is to basically say to Americans, and I've seen many articles about this, many things on television, the problem is is that American voters are ignorant. They're ill-informed, they're low-information voters, and that's why they're deciding this way, because the Democratic Party, I think, is stuck with Joe Biden. If he's not going to go anywhere, and he's the kind of politician who has never sacrificed his own personal self-interest for any kind of greater cause, there's no reason to expect that he would do so now. They're tied at the hip to him, and they see these polls and are... In extreme panic mode, I think if you have liberal friends, you should definitely check on how they're doing after that last poll because it's not just a Biden... Uh, collapsed. It's in key swing states, all of which he won in 2020, where Trump now has a significant lead despite four indictments. So all their efforts to try and destroy Trump have failed, at least until now. And I don't think the Democratic Party is going to abandon Joe Biden. If he wants to run, he's going to be their nominee.
5: So there seems, and maybe we're imagining this, we pulled together a montage of media coverage of Biden recently. I want you to listen to it. It does seem a little different from what I remember last time I watched TV. Here it is.
2: A stunning New York Times Sienna poll shows that Donald Trump leading Joe Biden in Nevada, Georgia, Arizona and Michigan. The number of Americans who think that things are going badly in the country today has hit its high for the year. So you might expect any incumbent to be down as Biden is.
6: But then look at these positive views of what people think will happen for them financially if Donald Trump wins. Way more voters think they'd be better off.
7: I guess the big news in the poll is that Biden is losing to Donald Trump because of huge losses among black voters and young voters.
2: The more diverse the swing state, the farther Mr. Biden was behind. And he led only in the whitest of six. Then let's look overseas. There's more voters, we find, who think that it's Trump that would keep the
6: U.S. out of a war if he wins. This is probably going to lead to a lot of Democrats increasing the chatter that Joe Biden should step aside and and make room for another Democrat.
5: (laughs) I love that white liberals are the only people who like Biden so perfect. But the media don't appear, maybe I'm I'm reading too much of this, they don't appear
0: to be downplaying this, much less ignoring it. They seem to be hiding. Right. Trump is the only president in recent years who's not gotten the U.S. into more wars and now. Joe Biden has recklessly inserted the U.S. into the Ukraine versus Russia war, into the Middle East war with Iran and uh, Hezbollah and Hamas and also ratcheting up unnecessary tension with China over Taiwan. Highlighting Biden's weakness. What, uh, What do you make of that?
2: I mean it's just they're so grim. They're like you know what it reminds me of? Have you seen those montages where the media started off election night twenty sixteen incredibly excited and happy and as the night wore on they get more they get bleaker and bleaker and more I was and more there. depressed until yeah, it finally sits in and by the time they're like so destroyed and in practically yeah. in tears? That's the tone. I think what they're trying to do is to put pressure on the Democrats and Biden to say, look, you're you're this is serious now. Like it doesn't seem like you you have any chance of winning in a last ditch hope to try and convince Biden to step aside to the Democrats to force him to. Of course the media is I mean completely completely. completely petrified of the idea that Trump would win, even though part of them knows it will help their careers like it did the first time around. But they really are scared of Trump. They really view Trump as this ultimate menace. And I think those horrified tones are about the fact, two things, one, there's obviously a good chance Trump will win and they can't understand that. And I think that's the other thing is, All they've been saying for six years is that Trump is a white nationalist, that Trump is a racist, that Trump hates all minorities. And here you have increasing numbers of non-white voters doing the exact opposite of what you would expect them to do if they trusted or believed what those people have been saying. Namely, they're voting for Donald Trump, the racist white nationalist candidate who wants to put them all into camps. And so if you're an employee of these media outlets and you look at these polling numbers, you realize that these people have tuned you out. They don't care what you say anymore. They don't trust what you say anymore. They have completely lost any control or influence over how Americans reason because most Americans are smart enough to have come to the conclusion that those people that you just showed in the media outlets for which they work are absolute liars are just propagandists and people who exist to deceive and that is the good news that these institutions where people have lost faith in deserve to have lost their faith and trust they deserve the contempt and hatred they provoke and it's good that americans are recognizing that and it's good that those people there even though they'll never question whether they are to blame are also starting to see that nothing they say really matters and makes a difference any longer that's that's right and that and they do
5: exist to deceive so nicely put. one last question i, I have to This asks and this is on tape. What is your prediction for how the next year, we're exactly a year from the election, plays out? Is it Trump versus Biden November? I mean, what do you think is gonna happen?
2: I mean, it seems to me like Republican voters have very consistently made clear that Trump is their candidate. I just wanted to add one point about this next year, which I think is so important. I know it's taboo. we're not supposed to ever say anything good about Trump, but the reality is, Tucker, and I think people are gonna realize this more and more, is that Trump was the first American president in decades, in decades, not to involve the United States in a new war. Whereas here you have Joe Biden, seemingly there's a new war popping up all the time. He wants to involve the United States in every one, send all their money overseas for them. And at the same time, they remember that the economy was vibrant and good before COVID hit. You can't lie to the American people about their own experiences, their lived experiences, the left likes to say. And I think as the next year approaches, people are going to start to think about and compare what their lives are like under Joe Biden, where there's wars everywhere and inflation and economic turmoil, what it was like during donald trump and i think they're going to be increasingly immune to the propaganda and to me i don't see anything in the republican party obviously that can change that suggests that
0: they will abandon trump now maybe the one variable okay i think uh, some excellent points made by glenn greenwald there uh absolutely chilling fascinating article in the bbc and here's the headline i'm calling from israeli intelligence we have the order to bomb you have two hours all right from the BBC, the call to Mahmoud Shaheen came at dawn. It was Thursday, 19 October, about 6.30 a.m. Israel had been bombing Gaza for 12 days straight. He'd been in his third floor, three-bedroom flat in Al-Zahara, a middle-class area in the north of the Gaza Strip. Until now, it had been largely untouched by airstrikes. He'd heard a rising clamor outside. People were screaming, you need to escape, somebody in the street shouted, because they will bomb the towers. As he left his building and crossed the road looking for a safe place, his phone lit up. There was a call from a private number. I'm speaking with you from Israeli intelligence, a man said down the line according to Mahmoud. That call would last more than an hour and it would be the most terrifying call of his life. The voice addressed Mahmoud by his full name and spoke in flawless Arabic. He told me he wanted to bomb three towers and he ordered me to evacuate the surrounding area. Mahmoud's tower was not directly under threat, but he was suddenly responsible for evacuating hundreds of people. I had the lives of people in my hands, he says. Imagine you're in his situation. He gathered his thoughts and told the man, who identified himself as Abu Khaled, not to hang up the phone. As a 40-year-old dentist, Mahmoud says he had no idea why he was chosen for this task, but that day he did everything he could to keep his community safe. Directed by the voices of strangers who always seemed to know how to reach him, even when his battery ran out, he pleaded for the bombing to stop and screamed until his throat hurt for people to run away. So if you're screaming until your throat hurts, you need to move the resonance point up further in your throat so you're, so that you're vibrating and you are projecting your voice from, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, from that place up there, right up there at the very top, you know, the most uppermost resonance point in the back of your throat you can then effortlessly project your voice. I learned that in my $250 an hour voice lessons about uh, three years ago. So during this conflict, I used to routinely get a sore throat when I do these live streams now it virtually never happens. During this conflict, the Israeli military has phoned Gazans sometimes to warn them ahead of airstrikes. Uh, I mean, I, I can't think of any other nation that does this. Right. So Mahmoud could not believe it when the man began speaking. People around him warned the call might be fake. Mahmoud asked the voice on the phone to fire a warning shot to prove this was real. A warning shot, seemingly from nowhere, but perhaps from a drone, hit one of the apartment blocks under threat. (laughs) Can you imagine? Now that Mahmoud knew it was real, he tried to stall, asking the man to be patient. The man said he would give Mahmoud time said he did not want anyone to die, did not want anyone to be injured. So he kept the call going as he rushed around the neighborhood, urging people to evacuate. One neighbor remembers the dentist just shouting, then others joined in. I didn't want to know that there was someone there who I could have saved and I didn't. When the areas around the buildings were clear, the man informed Mahmoud that the bombing would begin. Mahmoud panicked. What if they bombed the wrong building by mistake? Wait a bit, the man told him. Israeli aircraft circled overhead. Mahmoud stared at the three towers that neighbored his own apartment block. Then one of them was bombed. This is the tower that we want. Stay away, the man said on the phone as the building fell. Then the two other blocks were then destroyed. When the bombing stopped, Mahmoud remembers the voice telling him, we're finished. You can now go back to your building that was not bombed. Then later that day, Mahmoud received another call. Different man was on the line. Boys said they realized Mahmoud was a wise man after the events of that morning, which is why they were calling him again. This man introduced himself as Daoud. Mahmoud was unnerved by the level of detail the man had about his life, by the familiar way the man addressed him, and referred to his son's name. The man made some attempt to explain what was happening in Gaza. Did you see how Hamas slaughtered those children with knives? Mahmoud says the man told him more buildings would be destroyed that night and the dentist would need to order his neighbors to evacuate once again. Wow, Uh, just chilling, amazing story there from the BBC. All right, this is from a favorite uh, website of mine called The Daily Reprieve. It's a series of talks from the 12-step group Sexaholics Anonymous, is about the most rigorous, most uh, religious 12-step program addressing sex addiction. So they have it as a bottom line goal to live a life that is free from lust. And the group holds that the only appropriate place for sex is within heterosexual monogamous marriage. Um,
6: you know, some knowledge of what page something's on in the big book, you know,
0: and, and trust me, I can do that. I know the big book pretty good uh
6: but if at a quarter to 5 in the morning i really i'd rather be sleeping than tell you what page things are on in the big book so for me the answer to that question is that um for a long time i was up at a quarter to 5 in the morning acting out because i still hadn't finished acting out from yesterday and um for me to be able to put a little bit into my recovery that i put into my addiction like the book says and it, for the purpose of carrying the message to the sexaholic who still suffers that's that's the only answer if there's anybody on the line who's in the program and struggling for me to be able to tell you that it works if you work it that's really yeah it's a good topic because it's true and that's really the only message I'd want to be talking to you about um because i i wasn't so sure i wasn't so sure for a long time in the program i went to meetings i made phone calls i had a sponsor um i went to a lot of meetings i made a lot of phone calls and I didn't have any sobriety to show for it. Um, and I just resigned myself to the fact that um, it works for some people when they work it. And I just might be one of those people who are doomed for, to failure, uh, diet die a sexaholic death. And, uh, and that's just my fate. And it bothered me. Like why, why does everyone else seem to be getting more and more sober more and more recovered as they, you know, and new people came in after me and seemed to catch on and get sober and, and before you know it, uh, you know what they say? The light is shining in their eyes. <laughs> and uh, the light wasn't shining in my eyes. Uh, got pretty bad for me. Um, the first guy who was sponsoring me was instructed by his sponsor. Well, let me back up a little. But let me finish the sentence. He was instructed by his sponsor that he shouldn't talk to me if he values his sobriety because he'll probably act out if he keeps talking to me. That was the end of that sentence. But backing up, actually, uh, I have a funny story with Harvey. I know he did one of the talks on this uh, on this uh, conference. So I was at a conference uh, actually during that time, a live conference, not an internet conference. And I was there with, you know, my sponsor used to always talk about this guy Harvey that he talks to all the time. And I don't know who he's talking about. You know, I was new, what did I know? There was names that got thrown around at meetings like Harvey and Bill and Bob and Roy K. And what do I know who these people are? You know, I, I, I don't know that half of them are dead at that time. Could be Roy was alive, but um, I'm at a conference and this little short guy comes walking by and I'm talking and I said to my sponsor, who's that? He's like, who's that? That's Harvey. I said, oh, Harvey, the guy you always talk about. So I walk, So we walk over to him together, and I start talking to Harvey. And, uh, and he, turns to my, my, uh, he turns to my sponsor, or to me. He says, he says I, are you on medication? I said, no. He says, you should think about getting on medication. <laughs> something's wrong with you. Uh, so that was my first hello. And then we're talking for another minute, and he turns to my sponsor, and he says to him, are you his sponsor? And uh, he said, yeah. He said, how do you talk to him and stay sober? Oh man! So that was my second. That was the second minute we had. So, anyway, uh, that 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 conversation didn't go so fantastic. Uh, and Harvey and I, when we see each other, we still joke about it because. And he says the joke's on him because, uh, here I am, sober now since June twenty first of two thousand and ten, which is not a lifetime. It's not an eternity. Uh, if if you're thinking,
0: I remember when I started my Alexander Technique uh, daily teacher training. I was considered the person in the class. least likely to graduate i had the most entrenched you know destructive maladaptive physically deforming habits Uh, it was thought that i'd have you know the hardest time developing myself so that i'd become capable to teach the alexander technique but i was dedicated i made it all the way through
6: like a normal person like you know we're now going to be coming into 2019 so i'll be coming up on nine years you know middle of the year but but for a sexaholic who can't get 24 hours of sobriety, I never thought I'd get a week of sobriety.
0: So I I listen to these type of talks every day, sometimes multiple times a day, particularly when I feel myself in need of a a spiritual, cognitive, psychological reset. Whenever I listen to this stuff, it doesn't come naturally to me. Part of me wants to fight it. And I I listen to it until I feel myself kind of resetting, reorienting, recalibrating, uh, changing the way I view myself and, and life and uh, get my priorities in order.
6: And apparently the sober people around me didn't think I was going to get a week of sobriety either. So I'm sitting at meetings and my sponsor no longer wants to talk to me. And his sponsor's telling him, don't talk to me. For God's sake." Harvey's telling him not to talk to me. And, uh, and there's fewer and fewer people in the group that are you know, willing to take my phone calls because I'm burning people out. So here I am really getting to feel what a first step feels like, that we admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I didn't really think or feel that it works if you work it because I thought I was trying really hard. I, like I said, I, it's not like I would act out and, and you wouldn't see me at a meeting for the next five weeks. I would act out sitting in the parking lot in my car waiting for the meeting to start, and then I'd go running into the meeting. You know?
0: So there's a saying in 12-step groups, it works if you work it, but shim makes the point in this talk shim shim's jewish that uh the converse is also true it doesn't work if you don't work it you don't work the program you don't get the benefits of the program
6: i'm saying things like i'm sorry i'm late you know and checking in telling everybody my sobriety date was five ten minutes ago so i guess part of the question really is so what, what happened? i get that question a lot from people who
0: so your sobriety date, right? How long have you been sober? So people define it differently. So some people have been, you know, since they last masturbated or acted out with pornography or had uh, sex of which they were shamed or went to a strip bar. But then for other programs, it would be when you last took, say, under work, you know, work that was, you know, so low paying that uh, it was, you know, bad, bad for you, that it was kind of against your recovery. So what's an appropriate wage? Basically, the thought is that uh, you should take your basic expenses, then double them, and then figure out you know how much an hour you need, and then don't take work below that level. So for me, uh fifty thousand dollars a year is just absolute minimum for paying my expenses. so if I double that, it'd mean I need a minimum annual salary of a hundred thousand dollars. So I, I should not take any work that pays below $50 an hour. That would be, say, one definition of sobriety in a program like uh, Under is Anonymous.
6: Struggle. So what happened? And um, spe- it becomes especially uh, poignant for newcomers who ask me that when, when they hear other people, like when I celebrate or when I tell my story, and people who've been here before I got here will share you know, humorously because they've got some funny war stories with me. And they'll share about like, oh, God, this guy. And they'll go on to describe what it was like sitting next to me at a meeting. You know, if if we were Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd be the guy who smelled like alcohol at the AA meeting. You know, and they'd say, "So what changed? What happened?" So, I want to share a couple of things that happened, and maybe even a little bit about my first three steps. Uh, hey, you got was, uh, Elliot Blatt I really, here. I really Elliot,
0: what's
8: what's going connect-
0: down,
8: bro? Oh, uh, blessings, Luke. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Longtime caller. San Francisco.
0: Caller. I'm listening.
8: All right. So, what an eventful week, huh? Yes. Um. So, the uh, the whole Adderall uh, situation has uh, provoked a lot of controversy. Um, it has, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it felt like, uh, I have to say, you had a very sort of adversarial posture in your last video, the sundown video of Thanksgiving Eve, I believe. Do you feel, uh, yeah. uh, you yeah, feel defensive I, about this?
0: Well, I'll, I'll just repeat my basic point that uh, people in general don't want you to change. And uh, when, when you're making a change, you know, family, friends will usually try to fight against it. And pe- if you're sick and there's a medication that can make you well, uh, sick people will want you to stay sick and well people will want you to get well. Okay, back to you.
8: Well, what led you to the conclusion that you feel like you have ADHD? Because you don't seem to, as far from my outsider perspective you don't sort of exhibit any of the traits I, you know, I associate with ADHD. I mean, you're, you're pretty productive. You're uh, more than pretty productive. You're highly productive and you seem to work all the time. You produce uh, you know, live stream on a very regular basis. So you have a lot of accomplishments and I associate people with ADHD uh, with, uh, with people who just can't, Seem to sort of execute on things? Is this a false, um, you know, I can make some false assumptions here.
0: Well, I, I think you're touching on some symptoms of ADHD, but for me, it was humiliation, right? I didn't go and get this ADHD checkout, you know, on, on the wings of victory, right? I came to it on the wings of defeat and humiliation where by failing to pay attention to mundane details, I cost myself thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And I have repeatedly had this problem. So for example, I sold a car and I yeah. didn't get the appropriate paperwork filled out and it was just endless aggravation and lost income. I suffered you know, another humiliation recently, this costing me thousands upon thousands of dollars. This has happened to me time and time again. A, a Failure on my part to pay attention to non-exciting details, to failure to pay attention to mundane details that normal people in my peer group do pay attention to, and failure, humiliation, and the loss of thousands upon thousands of dollars is... And then talking about that with people close to me and them pleading with me to go get checked out for ADHD, I stop fighting it and I just okay let me let me go get uh, a consult so here are some of the the symptoms Uh, being unable to sit still especially in calm or quiet surroundings that's basically true for me Uh, constant fidgeting pretty much true for me Uh, you'll notice I'm usually like squeezing something when I'm doing my streams being unable to concentrate on tasks I have difficulty concentrating on tasks that are not exciting to me Uh, excessive physical movement yeah excessive talking so i can be frequently i'm overly verbal in context where that's maladaptive being unable to wait their turn yeah i frequently interrupt uh, unable to wait their turn acting without thinking yeah interrupting conversations just general maladaptive levels of verbal impetuosity and impulsivity saying things that are inappropriate and then walking around with this dread that uh I, I'm going to repeat this problem over and over again, thus harming other people, but most of all myself. So uh, humiliation leading to not you know, being invited back to meals at the homes of Orthodox Jews uh, because I said something verbally impulsive that I, I thought was funny, but turned out was highly inappropriate. And now you know, longtime friends have stopped inviting me around for meals. So a whole lot of humiliation led me to this place.
8: Okay, humiliation is one thing, but the connection to ADHD is not entirely clear. I mean, yeah, maybe you're just a little bit, uh, you know, you're an energetic, you know, excitable boy. They all said, you know.
0: Well, you know, these you know. are symptoms. I mean, people who specialize in, in this area do regard these as serious symptoms of ADHD. I, I could you know, retail more, you know, embarrassing. setbacks that I've had relating to this and so if I I can minimize this problem why would I not take that chance
8: you seem to you seem to take one little quirk and turn it into a big moral problem you seem to love to uh pathologize what seemed to me to be relatively innocuous behavior as being some deep sort of character flaw so So at at (laughs)
0: what loss of money at what loss of income would it be worth because I fail to pay attention to mundane details. So if I lose $100,000, uh, if I lose a million dollars, at what loss of income do you think it'd be worth checking out this type of problem? At At what number of not being invited back to the homes of friends? Like if it happens once, what if it happens a dozen times in a year? At what point okay. is it worth investigating this?
8: I'm not saying, okay, I'm not saying that these aren't, behavioral problems you know you clearly do if i may say have a few behavioral problems but you're you're it's you're you're making a a leap an inductive leap going from some behavioral problems to a physiological medical condition right
0: no i'm not making the leap leap. i'm going to get a diagnosis from people whose living is based upon making this diagnosis or not making the diagnosis
8: So do you know people that once had your sort of set of behavioral issues, started taking ADHD, and suddenly those behavioral issues disappeared?
0: Yes, I know a lot of people like that.
8: A lot. Okay, fair enough. Um, Now, it seems counterintuitive to me because, you know, one uh, Adderall's uh, an amphetamine type thing, an upper, a speed-like product, is it not? Yes. And... It seems like you would want to go the other direction. Maybe you need something more calming.
0: You would think that, but uh, not everything can you just intuit as a layman compared to people who spend decades studying this. So for whatever reason, the first line of drugs that are most commonly prescribed and recommended for ADHD are stimulants. So I don't just try to intuit uh, my medication or the world around me. I I do try to intuit, but I don't end with intuition. I also want to consult expertise. And I'm not someone who thinks that uh, uh, medication prescribed by a doctor is usually a good thing. I think it's frequently not a good thing, such as with SSRIs for depression. I think medicalizing depression is frequently wrong. I think SSRIs for depression are frequently maladaptive I think chiropractic is a scam. I think that doctors frequently perform unnecessary operations to make money. I think dentists are constantly scamming their patients. So I'm not someone who automatically sides with the medical profession.
8: Yeah, that's why it was all the more surprising, because you do seem to be, in general, COVID exception, you do do seem to be a pharma skeptic.
0: Yeah, I I, I have a, a moderate to above moderate skepticism of all professions, including the medical one.
8: Okay. Um, so I, I realize you've only tried it for a few days now, but, um, and you've ticked off your sort of newfound productivity. Um, no, no, no,
0: no, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't said that. I, I said I was disappointed that there hasn't been a burst in, in productivity. I expected a more immediate change from this medication. So whatever it has done has been exceedingly. Subtle and just a little bit more cleaning than normal. A little bit more attention to some mundane problems like a, a buzzing uh, fluorescent light bulb. But there has not been the, the dramatic burst of euphoria, energy, or productivity that many people experience when they take Adderall.
8: Okay. All right. But okay. So all right. So you you there's some improvement, but minor. You're saying
0: it 's very subtle it 's so subtle i 'm not even sure it 's there, so i 'm going yeah. to you know bounce off people who i I trust. you know I could be completely reading into what I think it changes over the last four days that that may not even be there so I, I do feel medicated like uh, this is a, a different state. I definitely feel medicated, but it, it's whatever effect it's having on me is, is really subtle it 's much more hard to put my finger on than what I expected.
8: Now you've tried the nicotine gum and that wasn't effective for you?
0: No, it, it was effective. I just haven't done it much. I did. I do feel smarter when I take, uh, when I chew some nicotine gum.
8: So like, I've, I just, I'm just coming off a period where I sort of had to go to the gum. I've been under a lot of deadline pressure. And so I've been having to work past where I'm comfortable. And so I've been chewing some of that gum, and it's worked, quote unquote, but the side effects I noticed, are really, they're very uh, noticeable, they're uncomfortable, meaning I, I, uh, my sleep has become really erratic uh, after chewing the gum on a pretty consistent basis. So I'm I'm glad that I'm, I'm not doing it now, but I had a, a a period of about a week where I was doing it regularly. And my sleep became a mess and then it had sort of negative downstream consequences from not sleeping properly. So um, I was just curious in that regard.
0: Yeah. I also very curious because I have friends who warned me that uh, Adderall just wrecked their sleep and that the side effects of Adderall were just absolutely devastating. In fact, you know, we have a mutual friend who abused Adderall for years and getting off it was, you know, just devastating for him. So, I haven't experienced any of the purported negative effects. It's had zero effect on my sleep. But, again, I take my last Adderall pill usually about 11 a.m. So when were you taking your last bit of nicotine gum? Uh,
8: About the same time, around lunchtime, after my morning coffee had uh, worn off. uh, Then I would go to, I would do nicotine gum. So that would give me like a like a three hour work session. because uh, I, I start to really fall off after noon. Yeah. Uh, my energy levels really start to dip. So I was throwing in the old nicotine gums try and, you know, arrest that drop off. And it works to an extent. Is the is the
0: drop off typically after lunch or mid afternoon? Uh
8: basically one PM. Yeah.
0: After okay, lunch, after lunch. lunch, yeah.
8: Whether I eat lunch or not. It's
0: right? mm-hmm. not like mm-hmm. a
8: digestive coma type of situation. Uh, it's, it's not like, a
0: high-carb lunch. It's, it's just any lunch or lack thereof.
8: It's, it's, well, it's just the time of day. It just seems like that's all I've got, you know? And then my, my brain just gets really tired. My, I feel like, I feel like fluids draining out of my head. There's like nothing there starting at 1 p.m. I need a nap. Maybe it's just age, Luke.
0: When does your work day typically begin? Pretty
8: early, like seven. Okay. Uh, sometimes even earlier, sometimes later, but mostly seven. Uh, so, and I find if I have a meeting, like a meeting where I'm talking to people and I'm working through people's broken English, then uh, then the, the energy drop-off is like catastrophic. It's, it's like the plane being shot out of the sky. I just completely spiral into the ground.
0: So have, do you have any experience with uh, Ritalin or uh, Adderall? No, none, none. No, I'm You've never tried medafinil.
8: I'm trying to think the last time I took a pharmaceutical of any type, of any type whatsoever. The probably, probably the only time I did was like antibiotics like 20 years ago.
0: What about a condom? Oh, you did, you, what, you know no, did you use no, condoms I, I, back in the day?
8: Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But you know what? I, I lied. Uh, I did take, um, what, I guess it's probably OxyContin after some dental work. Like, I took pain pills. Mm-hmm. I, when I broke my arm, I took the same thing. So, uh, but that's the only pharmaceuticals I've taken. Um, what that's worth.
0: Now, how, how bad would it have to get before you became open to a pharmaceutical intervention?
8: Um... I would have to not be able to function.
0: Okay, and so your life would have to be absolutely destroyed before you'd consider a pharmaceutical intervention.
8: Yes. 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 I have a I have a very stoic New England self reliant attitude with regard to these things. It could be and, and
0: and you you've always had this?
8: I have. I have. Yes. I grew up in very austere circumstances. I'm not one of these suburban, you know, powder puffs.
0: So do you feel that because Jesus suffered on a cross that you two have your cross to bear?
8: (laughs) I do. and And I bear it well, my dude. Uh, yeah, perhaps there's a, perhaps there's a masochistic streak to, uh, my personality. I wouldn't deny that. Uh,
0: well, at least you see through the bullshit. I mean, for all yeah, your bro. problems and failures and, you know, lack of achieving what you want to achieve, at least you see through the bullshit because you haven't bought into the big pharma agenda.
8: That's right, man. I have X-ray vision. I can see it all, dude. Like a like an unmuddied lake.
0: I uh, mean, you suffer and you, you know, have your failures and and you have your humiliations, cool. but at least you see through the bullshit unlike the sheep all out there.
8: <laughs> I'm glad you understand, Luke. But I, I I see where you're going and you're 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 making a leap here, bro. You're, make, you're making this seem ideological when it's not ideological.
0: It's, no, it's, it's psychological. It's it's a we all have to have ways that we feel <laughs> superior. I mean I have all my ways where I feel superior to most other people. It's like an essential part of the human condition and you have I would assume that you've based a substantial part of your self esteem on you see through the bullshit.
8: Uh, No, I don't. It doesn't bolster my self esteem. Um, It allows me to. Seeing through the bullshit, though, does have merit because it allows you to sidestep (coughs) a lot of problems that most members of the herd, such as yourself, encounter.
0: Now, where do you get your self esteem? Like, break it down for me.
8: I get self-esteem from having a productive work session.
0: Okay, so Uh, you get self-esteem from work?
8: Yes, yes. Um, And I don't go around seeking self-esteem, so I never feel its absence.
0: Ah, you have transcended the human condition because, while normal, average people need to feel need to have a good reputation with themselves, you have transcended this average form of humanity.
8: Um, no, I, well, I have a philosophy. Like, I, I I think self-esteem slash contentment slash happiness, these things sort of are a uh, side effect. They're not a goal. They're a side effect of a life well-led, a disciplined life well-led. They're not a goal in and of themselves. They're not like objects that you go after that attain through assiduous effort. They're, you feel these things after doing what needs a doing, bro.
0: Yeah, and so you get self-esteem from a life well-lived.
8: Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Well, self-esteem, I mean, that that's the term you use. Um, I would just translate that to be like feelings of contentment and satisfaction
0: right i'm talking about the reputation you have with yourself i I assume that you get to walk around having a good reputation with yourself is that fair okay we've uh we've briefly lost elliot i hope he'll be coming back so just speak up at any time with this
6: encouragement the few people that talk to me Told me a few things that helped me, even when I wasn't sober yet. I'm gonna try to do this without crying. So,
0: Elliot, are you there? Speak up, man. Uh, All right. Okay, I made the lane change, dude. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. So, uh yeah. tell me more about the reputation that you have with yourself, uh, having a life that it, that you respect. Uh, you know, a life that's well lived. So, you are a hard worker. You're a productive worker. You, you pay your taxes reasonably, honestly. Uh, tell me more about the way you've developed a good reputation with yourself.
8: Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've reflected upon them and I've resolved to behave differently after my mistakes. I've, I've, I've done the, the school of hard knocks.
0: Yeah, other people look look for help from like psychiatrists or 12-step programs or religion or cults but elliot blatt stands on his own two feet he is willing to take responsibility for his own mistakes he takes accountability for his choices he learns from his mistakes and he sees through the bullshit
8: that's exactly right (laughs) all this other stuff is gay it doesn't work bro it's a simulacra there's no there's no shortcut loop that's the first learned: There are no shortcuts. Once you accept that, that's ironically a shortcut. People burn up a lot of energy-seeking shortcuts. When it would just be simpler, it would be more effective to confront the problem head-on.
0: So what percentage of the general population would you wish that they had a life more like yours?
8: <laughs> Every single one, Every single person, bro. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it, Luke. I mean, who do you want to have dinner with, right? Who would you rather have a chit-chat with? Someone like me or someone who's just always whining about their self-esteem, bro? Um,
0: I, would I rather have uh, dinner with, say, someone who earned uh, four times your income and had, say, you know, four times your accomplishments in life than with you. No, I'd rather have, you know, have dinner with you than someone who was much more successful.
8: <laughs> it's always about the money with you, bro. Your people, bro.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
8: It's about the money. <laughs> oh, dear. So I'm on my way to uh, do some uh, car repair. Little extracurricular activity. I'm gonna save myself like three or four hundred bucks on a car repair by doing it myself. How do you like that? That's a great
0: idea. I mean, instead of specializing in your labor, you are independent and self-sufficient, and like you're a man.
8: That's right, bro. None of this weakness. I'll just I'll just get ripped off at the auto shop today. Not me, bro. I take the bull by the horns.
0: That you do, and you do that every night, right?
8: (laughs) Only when necessary, bro. Only when necessary.
0: Now, why are you Uh, pro-mushrooms but anti-pharmaceuticals?
8: Ah, excellent question, bro. Um, Because mushrooms encourage introspection, and introspection is a much more long-lasting solution than are sort of an artificial chemical lift. Mushrooms bring you to the point, they allow you to examine your decision making and resolve to make better decisions. Wow. One, so, is, wow. one is system, one is like, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, do you give a man a fish or do you teach a man to fish? Mushrooms teaches a man to fish, bro.
0: And what kind of choices and what kind of revelations have you received from use of mushrooms? Uh,
8: that I have a lot more control over my emotional reactions than I th- think I do or thought I did. So I don't need to react emotionally when I can just sort of interrupt that process of <clears throat> reacting emotionally. And sort of reason my way through it and not do damage to my body. Like when you react emotionally, you sort of poison yourself. Your 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 body releases all kinds of toxic chemicals and things. It takes a while to digest those toxic chemicals after you've reacted emotionally. So if you can interrupt that habit, most people have this habit. But if you can learn how to interrupt that habit, uh, you can spare yourself a lot of agony.
0: Wow! I like I, apples, bro. No, that's good because nobody ever gets poisoned from mushrooms.
8: Well, you know, that's why you need a good hookup, bro. So let me know if I can help you there.
0: Man, I, I appreciate that.
8: <laughs> Come on, man! I can't believe I honestly. So there is theoretically no toxic dose. There is no tox. There's no poisonous dose of. Um, so there's no toxic, lethal dose of, of medical, mus- of psilocybin mushrooms, by the way. I haven't oh. done them in a long time, but I, I, I'm really eager to, I have to say. I'm due for another uh, journey, as it were.
0: They're, they're very <laughs> safe, that's what you're saying.
8: Yeah, well, that's what the propaganda says.
0: And, and when did you last do them?
8: Um, maybe two springs ago.
0: Terry, so, yeah. they're so great. Why don't you do them since two springs ago? Because
8: it's because, <clears throat> because you learn your lesson and then you apply the lesson and then you don't need them anymore, bro. It's not like oh yeah that keeps you coming back, bro. Yeah, it's a different yeah. thing. It's a moral experience, bro. It's a uh, you know it's it's a it's like a therapy session with yourself, bro. All right, listen i'm uh I'm at my destination. I might have to uh, hang up soon. blessings okay blessings I hope blessings. I hope this, I hope this was uh, worth your time okay all right fantastic shalom. Shalom. Shalom, shalom.
0: Shalom. okay uh question in the chat what low sugar fruit drinks you have this morning I didn't have any but uh I often drink uh vegetable juice which is you know, the type of vegetable juice that has no fruit juice, no, no added sugar, that's you know low in sugar, has got uh, you know, like two grams of protein, eight grams of, of carbs. So relatively fresh squeezed uh, vegetable juice. Okay, let's play a little bit more from Shim F. It works if you work it from The Daily Reprieve, which is a podcast from Sexaholics Anonymous. The first
6: thing is you can't leave before the miracle happens. And uh, I really wanted a miracle to happen. And if I leave, the miracle is not going to happen. My sponsor, not the first guy I told you about, eventually uh, a friend in the program took me to a meeting and got me a new sponsor. Unbeknownst to me or my sponsor, he kind of just introduced us and told my sponsor, Anthony, you're his sponsor. And then he walked away. And Anthony uh, has been my sponsor ever since. Recently, I found another one only because of circumstances. Anthony moved down to Maryland. He's retired. We weren't talking as much. And, and, and I'm working on certain things. I needed someone local. But, uh, but my sponsor would say to me, you know, suit up and show up. And that's, a, and that's not something I'm powerless over. I can suit up and show up whether I'm sober a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade. It doesn't matter. Regardless of what's going on in my life and what happened yesterday, tomorrow, right now, right here, I can get my rear end to a meeting no matter what. I can do that. So don't leave before the miracle happened became something important to me. And really, really accepting that I'm a sexaholic. And the fact is is that if nature takes its course, I will die a disgusting sexaholic death. And, that, and, and there's nothing I can do about it. So get on with life. I don't mean that I shouldn't try to get sober, but but if I do or don't get sober, became, uh, it didn't become the point. The point was that if I wasn't going to get sober, it wasn't going to be because I wasn't going to try. So I was going to do whatever I can do to get and stay sober, knowing full well it probably wasn't going to happen. And for me, that's my first step. Uh, there's, this, there's, this chat, there's this section in the book that I heard other speakers talk about over the last 24 hours. It's the acceptance paragraph in Dr. Paul's story in the big book. In the fourth edition, it's on page 417. And in there, there's a line. He says... Um, until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. That's a funny line, but for me it meant I wasn't going to start staying sober until I fully conceded to my innermost self. I accepted the fact I'm a sexaholic, and it doesn't matter why everyone else is getting it, and I'm not, but I'm a sexaholic. So uh, the fact that I'm working my rear end off and not having any sobriety was not a good enough reason to give up. Giving up uh, was taken off the table, and if I was going to succeed or not, it was going to be God's business. If I was going to try or not, it was going to be my business. And I can honestly say from that day to this, the only thing I've ever done consistently without any relapses is I've kept on trying without giving up.
0: So when 12 staffers talk about powerless, that doesn't mean that they're arguing that they don't have power over anything. It means that they don't have sufficient power, not reliable enough power. So if you drink to excess one out of every 10 times you drink, for many people, that's maladaptive, that there's, you know, some... A maladaptive habit in your life, and you lack sufficient power over drinking, or one out of twenty times. So when you join any twelve-step program, like everybody in it will be struggling with lack of power in some area of their life. But that doesn't mean everyone in it is, you know, just powerless over everything. We have insanity or lack of power in different areas of our life, so we can get help from each other because we have, you know, somewhat different struggles.
6: You know, when someone tells you that their sobriety date is June 21st of 2010, uh, I hope you never think that means that whatever that sobriety date is, that they never struggled again, they never lost it again, they never raged again, they never, uh, you know, had those phone calls with their sponsors, should I reset my sobriety again or not, especially early on. Uh, you know, there's a few things that happened in the first few months of my sobriety that if I laugh at it now, because if I would do something like that today, I would not be calling myself sober. But I was so desperate. It was like, I just put I needed to put one day in front of the other one foot in front of the other. And that's where I was at at the time, you know, so. But what I did do was I never gave up. Giving up's not an option, and 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 my sponsor would keep telling me, "Don't leave before the miracle happens." Suit up and show up, and that's what I did every single day. Um, the second thing that was really pounded into my uh, into my brains by people, including my therapist, because he was an AA guy, he told me once, he's like, "Why don't you go read the stories in the back of the big book, and come back next week and tell me which one of those guys got sober without a higher power?" Now I wasn't I wasn't sober, and I wasn't you know my brains were all over the place, but I was. Uh, intelligent enough I knew the answer before I went to look it up <laughs> the answer was nobody um, and I knew that without reading the stories but I read some of the stories anyway and um, and it was obvious the people who were sober had a power greater than themselves they had a god of their understanding and I was going to have to do I was going to have to get a higher power and um and I'm so grateful that I had to find my higher power in darkness in, in crap when I was not yet sober because a lot of people struggle um, to connect with their higher power when they are struggling you know, when they just lusted, when they just raged, when they're, when they know they're not behaving in a sober way. And I don't struggle with that because...
0: Right. So I found that there are a lot of things that I need to do to connect with, you know, my higher power with God. So I find it more difficult to connect with, you know, my higher power when I'm walking down a crappy street than when I'm in beautiful nature, I find it easier to connect to God when I'm with some people as opposed to other people, I find it easier to connect to God in some circumstances, some situations in some buildings rather than other buildings, certain si- social situations as opposed to other social situations, listening to certain music, sacred music. All right, I find it easier to connect to God when I'm listening to sacred music as opposed to, say, the Bee Gees. I find it easier to connect to God at Yosemite or at a, a synagogue than, say, in a sports bar. All right, there are choices that I need to make to facilitate this uh, connection with a power greater than myself?
6: Um, I first found a higher power who loved me, and then I got sober. And I'll never sit and try to prove to you why God loves you. Yeah, but what about all the horrible things that happened in the world? And what about all the bad things that happened to me when I was a kid? And what about the fact that this horrible thing happened to me, and I don't have a job, and all these things that people-
0: I find there are tons of things in 12-step that are highly, highly mockable, and fun to mock, and hilarious to mock. And so it's a very pragmatic system, right there there are all sorts of things I've found in life that are mockable and ridiculous, but somehow they work, and that's what I've found in 12 step a lot of things that are both mockable and seem to work so my my primary test for a program like this for you know inner renewal is does it work, not does it make sense?
6: We'll say to prove that God's not loving to which I say, I don't know the answer, or maybe I do today, I actually do, but that's not how I found the loving higher power. I found the loving higher power because I didn't have a choice. It was like, find God or die. And the way I was acting out, dying was not a a, a cute cliché.
0: Right. So it took a whole series of humiliations and losses and falling on my face before I would finally confront, hey, maybe I really need to get checked out for ADHD. Thought about it for 15 years. And he finally took action on it in the last three weeks because of, you know, some embarrassing setbacks.
6: Um, Sorry, I'm getting distracted because I can hear, I can hear my baby crying in another room and my wife knows that she's got to get him. So I'm going to try to ignore that. Um, So, you know, when I say find God or die, which is a, which the white book talks about, for me, it wasn't a cute cliche, like die, like, you know, alcoholics can die from overdose or alcohol,
0: so the white book is the Sexaholics Anonymous primary text, the, the equivalent of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous.
6: Poisoning or liver damage or driving drunk. Now, I was driving drunk, you know, coming down the Garden State Parkway here in New Jersey at 80 miles an hour with a magazine on my steering wheel. And um, I won't get too graphic about what I looked like in that vehicle, uh, but I wasn't fully dressed.
0: Yeah, the embarrassing things that I've said and done, and I've been at full mask. oi.
6: And I definitely wasn't watching where I was driving. So to think that I could have been involved in a uh, fatal accident, just like an alcoholic, is not a...
0: Okay, why did I stop Provigil, aka medafinil and go on Adderall? Because of a series of humiliating, you know, financially costly setbacks in my life. I realized I needed possibly more help for potentially having ADHD, So when it comes to ADHD, Adderall and Ritalin are regarded as first-line medications. Uh, Modafinil is not even considered a third-line medication for ADHD, even though it does seem to provide some benefit for ADHD. So yeah, I definitely felt like I got a little bit of benefit for my ADHD with Modafinil. I thought that uh, I should check out ADHD and then I should check out Adderall. So I'm only on my fourth day of using Adderall. So I wasn't, uh, yeah. Modafinil has an off-label use for ADHD, but it's still not considered, you know, one of the top three lines of defense against ADHD. So, due to humiliation and setbacks, I thought I-, I need to try, you know, something different. I need to extend myself. I need to go further. I need to get this checked out. I need to listen to people with more expertise than me and uh, find out if. This improves my life. So, on my fourth day, the effects of Adderall are much more subtle than what I expected. Right, they they're not uh, as as brilliant and breathtaking and and large and profound and dramatic as I had hoped. I didn't get this surge of energy or productivity, or euphoria. I, I just noticed that. Uh, I no longer want to listen to music when I'm reading. I'm more seem to be a little bit more at ease with the mundane parts of life, and I feel less desperate need to flee from the mundane to that which is exciting. I feel a reduced level of uh, verbal impulsivity. I I think I may be just a little bit more adaptable, a little higher functioning, just just kind of rewired my central nervous system and my responses to stimuli in a way that's maybe 5% more in my own best interest. That's my vague sense. Now I'm gonna wait till I get feedback from people in my real life who I love and trust and get their feedback on what I'm like on Adderall as opposed to Modafinil, as opposed to nothing. Don't trust Uh, me. An
6: exaggeration. And just like a drunk guy will say, by God's grace, I didn't kill anybody, myself or others, I can say, by God's grace, I didn't kill anybody, myself or others. So for me, it's, it's, I I didn't have a choice. I just had to say, you know what, Uh, I start talking to a God that I didn't understand. I've heard people say, God of my misunderstanding, you know, whoever's out there, if there's any love in you, can you keep me sober today? I'm really struck. I just start talking to him and just really start doing the things that people told me to do without being so intellectual and figuring out the theory and the
0: yeah, so there are there are first line, second line, third line medications for ADHD. There are non stimulants for ADHD such as Stratera. Uh Stratera takes approximately two months to kick into effect. So the the most common uh, ADHD medication, the first line of medication for ADHD are the stimulants of, of Ritalin and ADHD and uh, Adderall, so Wanted to choose what was you know the what was prescribed by the doctor. I wanted to take a chance, listen to someone else, try what the the doctor said, try what is the conventional dominant response to ADHD and just check that out, see if it improves my life. I think it might be. Stop repeating the parameters of their corrupt clinical trials, Luke. That's slave morality. Well either Either a little bit of Adderall works and improves my life, or it doesn't. So I will find out, right? I could uh, try Stratera, but it's it's a third-line drug. Like, Why would I go for a third-line medication when I could have immediate benefit from the top-line of, of medication that's used for ADHD? Luke, what about good old-fashioned MJ? Oh, Mary Jane? That, uh, yuck, I hate that. It turns people into losers. You can't try two at once. Well, you can. Many people do use both modafinil and Adderall. Many people do use both modafinil and Stratera. It's uh, not uh, usually prescribed that way, but many people do it. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying you can Google online and see how different people react to a combination of you know, various medications. Yeah. Marijuana seems to turn a higher proportion of people into losers than any other substance of which I'm aware. Like it seems to me far higher proportion of people who try marijuana become losers than people who try nicotine or alcohol or Adderall.
6: The philosophy of why it works, just work it, just work it. And I did that. <clears throat> so.
0: Yeah. Most people change one variable at a time. Yes. Yes. I am not still taking Medafdil. I'm not taking anything but a low dose of Adderall. So I think uh, just changing one variable at a time usually makes the most sense. What about the claim that ADHD diagnosis is being used to medicalize and medicate boys for being boys? My only question is what works? All right, does it improve the life of these children or does it diminish the quality of life of these children? All right, does it make them more adaptive to reality or less adaptive? My sense is that it improves the quality of life for most people who take it, but I'm sure there are some circumstances where it's uh, not the best thing.
6: Uh, here's what started happening. Um, I, started, I started stringing together some time. And when I say some time, I'm talking two days, three days. Um, and what, and what, what I started noticing was um, there were certain days where I would go to a, a meeting in the morning and certain days where I would... Um, really, you know, do that third step that they talk about. And I would do it right when I woke up.
0: Luke uh, says the chat plays with drugs like chess. Not really. I, I use very little medication. I uh, tried modafinil for most of the last uh, 10 years, and it seemed to improve the quality of my life. Now I'm dropping modafinil and trying Adderall. It seems to be improving the, the quality of my life. So I'm quite willing to try things to see if it uh, improves the quality of my life. And I think there are people out there who may know more about various parts of life than I do. And I am willing to take their ideas and their suggestions seriously and give them a shot.
6: And I would do it on my knees. Now, that's not something that the book says you got to do. But that's what was suggested of me by my first sponsor, the one I told you about before. He had told me to pray on my knees. I asked my second sponsor, do I have to pray on my knees? My second sponsor was a Catholic guy. And he said, if you want to. And I I tried it both ways, but for me, something about getting on my knees was humble. It was powerful. It was me really feeling like, I I can't do this without your help. And
0: Yeah, getting on your knees is not a way that uh, Jews uh, typically pray, except for saying the Elenu prayer on Yom Kippur. But other than that, getting on your knees is not part of uh, Jewish ritual. But I did get on my knees when I would pray as a Christian. And so I have a lot of associations with the, the humility of getting on your knees, the kind of recognition that by getting on my knees, I, I'm saying, you know, God, you're, there's a power greater than myself. I, I find it's, it's good for me.
6: Sometimes it was awkward. Maybe my wife was around or my kids. So I'd get on my knees and look for my shoes under my bed or get on my knees and take some socks out of the drawer so it looked like I was doing something else um, when people are around. And whatever the case is, I would do the third step. And I would, I would really, you know, I offer myself to you. I like to say it in modern English, by the way. I don't speak old English, uh, but so you know, I offer myself to my higher power, and I imagine, I imagine like as if I'm a waiter at a, at a fancy restaurant, and I'm wearing a tuxedo, and I've got this, I've got this tray, and you know the the trays with the lids on them, like in the movies where you serve the, the steak and you pull the tray off, and there's the dish, you know, and I and I pull the, tr- the the lid, I mean, I pull the cover off the tray, and there's me on the tray, a little version of me, and I come before my higher power, and I say, I offer myself to thee. I'm offering myself to thee, to you, my high power, to do with me and to build with me as you wish, as thou wilt. That means that whatever happens today, you know, you can do whatever the hell-
0: So I believe that modafinil um, is a Schedule 1 drug. So it means it's regarded as the least dangerous, least habit-forming, least uh, addictive potential of uh, pharmaceutical medication. Uh, Adderall is a Schedule 2. So it does have potential for addiction and, and abuse.
6: How you want? If I'm using shame words to do with me, however the heck you want, and um it would be in the morning. I would start thinking of things like, well, "What if I spill coffee on my tie? Like, am I okay with that? <laughs> you know?" And I'd struggle. Like, "No, I'm not really okay with that." You know. And then someone said to me, "Well, then don't wear your tie when you're drinking coffee, Shim." You know. And like, "Oh, you mean there's some things I can do?" Um, but this is how it slowly started to just sink into my consciousness. And I would do the third step in the morning, and I'd go to that meeting, and, and I'd I've quickly make a few phone calls in the morning. I want to pull David.
0: Off How's it going, man? What's new? Um,
7: I just went to my local Jerusalem pizza so uh, I saw the links I popped on anyways even though I was stuffing my face, I got my uh, chili cheese fries, um, nachos and cheese sticks and a Greek salad and I I, uh, bumped into uh, one of my first rabbi's sons, now I guess he's a successful businessman, and we're talking a few minutes, you know, like, uh, I like think I was nice. How come you don't come around anymore? But like, yeah, his, uh, your know, brother and sister now are grandparents. I remember when they first got married, um, you know, now they're grandparents. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was difficult. I did on my week in review the last few weeks, a series I called like my failures as a Jew. And part of it, it, it was my failure to adapt into the Orthodox community. And then my failure to, uh, integrate my Judaism into larger Judaism, specifically related to like Zionism and the war where, uh, um, you know, where this uh, came out. I'm not sure if you saw my big appearance with Keith Woods this week and I was on Mario Nuffel and uh, Stephen James just hit a thousand subscribers and I was showing him this book um, Schindler's Gift. Oh. How one man harnessed ADHD to change the world. And uh, it's autographed by the author who was a teacher at my, um you know, Frankfurt school, Freudian uh, high school for the gifted. And uh, a lot of kids at ADHD there, he went on to become like a world expert on ADHD and a life coach. And his theory is ADHD could give you special powers that uh, other people don't have, although it does have its problems. And he historically re-diagnosed Oskar Schindler and claimed that Oscar Schindler had ADHD from, uh, his di- you know, uh, reading his biography and looking into it. And, uh, that was part of what was capable for Schindler to do. What he did was in fact his ADHD and, uh, you know, could be, uh, you know, a powerful tool if harnessed, uh, correctly, uh, but also you obviously dangerous and, uh, led to many of the problems that Schindler had in his life. And maybe you also, where you've had, uh, many successes in your life, a thrill seeker, um, ups and downs. Like you were mentioning your inability to take care of some basic things that uh, other people, uh, you know, quick to get bored with, not wanting to do things that are interesting. Um, but uh, at the same time that it's allowed you to uh, accomplish things that uh, many other people haven't accomplished. And, and you know, he puts, uh, you know, Schindler related to his ADHD as the thrill seeker.
0: And I don't know if uh,
7: you would classify yourself as that Luke Ford, the thrill seeker.
0: Yeah, I, I think I, I am. I I, I do seek see thrills. <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of what draws me to uh, live streaming. That, that's interesting. Have, have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD?
7: No, I saw a psychiatrist in high school, and I wasn't diagnosed with anything. Um, and I don't think I have any technical disorders. You know, like I sometimes will play that I've like psych- you know severe psychological problems, but I don't technically have any uh, disorders. I saw a psychologist a few times, uh, twice uh, in my youth. For you know, one time when I was like 10 years old, even for like a period of like six months, uh, I saw psychiatrists weekly and then also in high school. Um, but uh, I study psychology. I like psychology. I think I function differently. Um, you know, may just like an INTP or a high Q. I uh, I mean, I could self-diagnose my way in a bunch of ways, but I don't think I would actually... Uh, give myself an actual disorder. and uh, But but I could see that you you might be more likely to have an actual disorder if you want to say ADHD. And uh, that might be explanatory to your successes and
0: failures in life. Yeah. Do, do you have any particular attitude towards uh, psych, psychiatric medication?
7: Um, I mean, God forbid I, I did marijuana for years. Um, I, I would say it's almost always second best. If you don't need it, you're better off without it. But uh, if you need it, you should do it that uh, especially like ADHD. So I think they had uh, when I was young, they gave people like lithium and, and that was like a severe downer. So there's like Ritalin, um, which I guess is the upper. But then there's also like uh, lithium, which was a downer. And uh, like if you can't, especially when you're younger, kids who can't control their behavior uh, might uh, have outbursts in school or even to violent where they need to be given a downer as opposed to Ritalin, which, uh, if it's successful, um, maybe, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think if you just understand your difficulties, maybe have a close cohort of people who care about you, give you good advice, understand, uh, your situation in life and your, uh, good and bad points that could help you out with your difficulties. You know, okay, you're an older man now. So, I mean, if your parents, uh, you don't have like a close family, but, but, uh, you know, my mom constantly nags me. So maybe in the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, you could give an equivalent to, to like naggers that, uh, like people in the Orthodox community are constantly like nagging you. And that could be a good thing to, uh, you help you with your shortcomings, which would, uh, might be failure to do, uh, basic things that are necessary for your success in life that you just feel are unimportant or unexciting. Uh, But if you had someone in your life constantly nagging you, that uh, you might be able to do that. And then uh, you accomplish quite a bit, even in some ways more than your average person.
0: And what sort of things, I don't want you to damage yourself and damage your relationship with your mother. But what, what sort of things does your mother nag you about that you'd feel comfortable sharing? Publicly.
7: Oh, I mean, she nags me about everything really. Like, I mean, I, I still see my mom almost uh, daily, but uh, you know, just uh, my cleanliness, my, uh, you know, getting a haircut, uh, my, my clothes, you know, like uh, regular maintenance and health uh, checkups, uh, paying my taxes. Uh, um, you, you basically just all normal motherly things like my diet, my health, um, my personal relationships. And you know, when we lived together when I was young, you know, it would have been uh, you know, like daily chores or uh irregular cleanliness, um uh inappropriate behavior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think those are familiar to <laughs> most people who have a, a mother that's uh, in their life on a on a regular basis. Uh does she say anything about your live streaming?
7: No, she doesn't really follow it or like uh you know, watch any of the content and it would be too difficult to like uh, explain. I I was interviewed on this like Swedish channel the other day and I mentioned it to my mom. She thought that was neat. Although it turned out they were like these huge like anti-vaccine COVID conspiracy theorists. They're just, uh, we we talked about a few other things, but, you know, just kind of random this, uh, they reached out and wanted to talk. So I mentioned that to my mother, but usually I don't mention it, uh, you know, because she just is not familiar with the technology. Um, my mother's also like a lawyer, you know, she had worked for the IRS even briefly. So like on a business level, I, I heard, um, you mentioned to Elliot about your, your financial difficulties where, uh, you know, like, uh, may, may relate to your automobile or something where it just, my mother's like super responsible and, uh, you know, she pays the bills right away. She always has like a calendar with uh, all the things that, uh, you know, coming up that need to be taken care of. So if it was something like you're renewing your auto insurance, uh, getting your oil changes or any of these things that would just be, uh, you know, something that you don't want to do that you keep on putting off as opposed to being um, preemptively responsible and uh, that, in the long run could cause you financial damage uh, that uh, you like uh, from a business level. So my mother is a corporate attorney, um, like on a nagging level of the type things that might have made you more successful as a business person, like, you know, did you file this paperwork or did you organize your business tax structures in a certain way that would have made you more profitable, so on and so on.
0: And uh so thousands upon thousands of people watched your live stream with uh Keith Keith Woods. Keith Woods is a notorious figure on the uh, dissident right. He seems to have views that are perhaps best uh summed up as national socialist. Uh any highlights from your discussion with Keith Woods?
7: Um so two things. One was, you know, he put an interview with the rabbi and like we talked about it beforehand. I told him we get pushback from it. And he even joked on the stream, like, you know, what does he put like interview with a half Jew cussed from Detroit? It wouldn't have been as exciting. Um, he seemed relatively reasonable. I mean, I mean, because in isn't interview, we were talking about frame games and that woman, uh Kristen right. Ruby, who uh claimed that uh, frame games was behind the band the ADL uh movement. Um which uh, he was not sure or not whether that's accurate. Uh, but so on Monday I was on Mario Nuffel who I, I'm not sure if you've seen Mario Nuffel yet.
0: I'm not sure either. Tell he's the biggest
7: him. Twitter space guy in Twitter. He's actually Australian. I think I mean he's Arab of some background. Um, but grew up in Australia, went to Monash university, now lives in Dubai and, uh, a businessman. I think he's actually a multimillionaire many times over. And, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, he has uh, spaces on like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and just all sorts of news topics. Uh, Elon Musk has been a guest on his channel. He's one of the bigger guys like the new wave of Twitter uh, since Elon Musk took it over. Elon Musk retweets him all the time. And uh, he has uh, he did a series of streams on the band, the ADL movement, uh, largely like in defense of Elon Musk. And uh, but I say he's not American, like he's Australian, uh, uh, UAW uh, in his in his is international space. Uh, And then when the war broke out in Israel, he's been having regular podcasts. Uh, So. I reached out, like to be a a guest on his channel about the band, ADL movement and the first stream I was going to, they didn't end up putting me on like uh, their stream got cut short and they had so many guests that they didn't put me on. So he reached out just uh, Sunday is like, OK, we're doing another speech uh, on media matters and the ADL and uh, invited me on. So I was on. I spoke just a few minutes about um, somewhat defending the ADL or Jews, saying that uh, free speech is dangerous for Jews. Not necessarily my personal opinion. I even mentioned that that I favor free speech, but the Jews in general um, you know, as a minority, protected minority. Uh, and then like uh, Keith Woods pushed back on that. And then he did a post stream on his channel and he had uh, clipped that. And so uh, he reached out to talk. So the next day we talked and uh, we discussed what we're going to talk about. So he said he wanted to just ask me basic questions on Judaism. So I said, if that's the case, he could do it like, uh, like ask the rabbi. So uh, most of it was kind of just like a basic ask the rabbi, like uh, Talmudic text. Uh, what did Jews believe? uh a messianic thing versus law, uh, sectarianism. He wanted to understand anti-Zionism and uh, the breakdown of like Haredim, ultra-Orthodox Jews. How many of them are there? Where are they? What are their political beliefs? And you know, then later on, he brought in uh, Mario Nuffil's, uh Jewish co-host for his streams on the war in Israel and ADL, and like that guy just came on straight and like bashed me. He was like, this guy is not a rabbi. And uh, and uh, it so was, it was that, that was kind of like as expected because I even told Keith at the beginning, like, uh, you know, like out of respect, if I'm teaching you about Judaism, you could call me rabbi. Although I told him I'm not a rabbi, but rabbi means different things to different people and uh, that uh, I call hundreds of people rabbi. You mean I call liberal female rabbis uh, I call you know basically any Orthodox Jew that I deal with in a Torah learning setting rabbi, uh, so I just said like rabbi could be a respectful term just to make the conversation more seriously that I'm answering his questions about Torah in the text, but I got a lot of pushback on that, like this guy is not a rabbi, and uh you know this Israeli guy came on even though he's not religious at all, like he took issue with me being called a rabbi, uh and then Lucas Gage and uh no more news we're on um i think it's similar back to it's really just because of the war so there's interest in judaism because of the war and most of it is from counter semites that uh they're, you're like okay what's going on with israel why the war why do the elites uh, like israel so much and um so two things one thing like like this guy uh benjamin zev like the uh israeli expat who uh is mario's uh co-host uh it was like i could get you a better rabbi like zionist or anti-zionist and i pushed back like no way (laughs) no rabbi is going to speak to these guys other than me and i even had like no more use like i've been doing this for five years you are not going to find a rabbi to talk to you like Duvet is the best you're going to get and i used to i think i told you that or charles Moskowitz, like uh um, i don't think you'd be able to get a rabbi to come on these streams especially in like a hostile environment to talk to a counter Semite, it's just not what rabbis do and uh um
0: but on keith woodstream you you were treated respectfully
7: yeah and the comments were actually all relatively positive like you know just like a cultural exchange you know like uh commending me for my honesty i guess and he pressed me on a lot of issues about like the messianic beliefs and a breakdown like of my perception about how many people believe these various things, uh, statements in the Talmud. And I did my best largely to defend the Jewish people and defend some of these beliefs. Like, well, yeah, like we think we're going to be rewarded, uh, but uh, not necessarily in a way like, uh, you know, we think we're going to be like held over the the nations and the world and you're all going to be our slaves, but just think we're going to be rewarded uh, for, for doing this and uh, some notion of what it means to be, the chosen people, some questions about the statements in the Talmud and uh, the nature of the Talmud in relationship to how Jewish law is practiced. We follow the sages of the generation, so we don't actually follow the Talmud. The Talmud is just uh, uh, the recording of the sages of that period of time. And uh, he was also very curious about uh, Haredi anti-Zionism. So I know a lot about that, and I broke down why Haredim, uh, what it means for Haredim to be anti-Israel, and then also the political, like how many anti-Zionists are there, what's the difference of like the small sect of Natori Karta that actually do protest versus, uh, you know, people who are just politically anti-Zionist, and then even the, the anti zionists like in Israel, that even the like united toward Judaism that even serve in the government, but their official theological stance is anti-Zionist, and then you know having the israeli come on and uh kind of randomly attack me uh somewhat proved my point uh that uh he was like well this, this is just how we are You're like two jews ten opinions and uh, jewish sectarianism that uh most jews aren't religious so i you know i told them that you know judaism is judaism what jews do or is judaism what the religion teaches what the rabbis say what the sage is it, you know, broke down how many Jews actually value the sages, follow what the sages teach versus uh, what Jews do. So we, we didn't even really talk much about multiculturalism and immigration. It was more uh, theology and uh, general questions about kheredim.
0: Now, you're not a Zionist. Would you, I, I believe, would you regard yourself as hostile to Zionism?
7: I'm not politically active so I just say my my uh belief system in Judaism I'd be neutral to anti-Zionist although I'm not involved in anti-Zionist activities just if you ask me I would say the creation of Israel was probably a mistake I support a one state solution um giving immediate full citizenship and also I think the main cause of the war right now um obviously up the violence of Hamas and other factors, but uh, that uh, it's zero sum. And the main cause of the conflict is, in fact, Zionism. And we're reaching a brink point where basically Israel has to give up on Zionism or uh, commit to a full ethnic cleansing because uh, you can't really have both. And then I would say religiously, like, I don't need a Jewish ethno state. I don't see that as part of my Judaism. Um, and, you know, learn from my rabbis that uh, it's the, the state of Israel is heretical, and then the difficulty to Jews in relationship to anti-Semitism, where you have a state actor. So, you know, we're worried about rising anti-Semitism and, like, the alt-right and things like, okay, the Jews support multiculturalism and immigration. And certainly that's going to cause some pushback in uh, anti-Semitism, the group conflict. Uh, but, like, nothing is going to cause group conflict and anti-Semitism than the Jews collectively killing tens of thousands of people uh you know in terms of, like the escalation and if the Jews escalate the war to where uh uh you know if the if Israel doesn't back off where in all likelihood uh, we will end up killing uh fifty to hundred thousand people and uh you saying like yeah that would likely dramatically escalate anti semitism and um when I was talking with Stephen James that uh I think what's likely to happen is. You're going to see a Gazan refugee crisis and the Gazans are going to end up in the United States. Uh, you know, I was even arguing with my dad and brother over Thanksgiving who don't really follow it. But they, they they kind of had this view that, yeah, like the Gazans are going to end up in some other Arab nations. Like, no, no it's not going to happen. Like, God forbid, they're going to end up here. We've created this huge refugee crisis and uh, Egypt, the other Arab nations, there's almost zero chance they're going to take them. And like Kevin Michael Gray says, anytime the United States gets involved in these foreign wars, those people end up here. So I think that's what you're going to start seeing over the next few months is uh, you know the slow influx of Gazan refugees. And if the war continues, it could even be a massive influx of hundreds of thousands of Gazans to the United States.
0: Is there any update in the Samantha Wall case? She's the synagogue president and a political activist who was uh, found found Continue dead. Continue to work to get new going Nothing. on in that case.
7: Nothing. I mean, they they had arrested somebody who they said like was at her funeral, was a, a part of the synagogue, and then they released him without telling who he was or whether he was the uh, suspect in the murder. Um, most people are leaning towards a domestic dispute. I don't know enough about her to uh, say who she might've been dating or, or but uh, I think God forbid it's uh, like, it's it's likely that I stopped going to the synagogue before COVID-19 and there's a lot of new people going there. There's some speculation that it might even have been someone on the board of the synagogue or someone that the majority of the people of the synagogue know. So, uh, um, and that likely the, the police highly, Think that it's a certain person, but just don't have any evidence. Um, what evidence the police have, like if they have evidence, like she left the wedding with somebody, or maybe she was uh, there was somebody staying at her at her apartment. Um, but there's not actually evidence to like a weapon or to uh, pin a uh, pin, pin an arrest, and so it may not be solved. Um, I mean, from the general public perspective, he's like, Yeah, like maybe anti-Semitism. But from the police investigative uh, expert, they are saying like, no, it was like her. it was her boyfriend. And, uh, you know, ironically, I, don't, I can't even find out who her boyfriend is. Like, I'm sure people at the synagogue know and are speculating that uh, that it's probably a person who did it. Uh, but uh, I don't know her well enough for the synagogue. And they're keeping that pretty uh, close lip to say if, if there's a suspect that they're saying, like, yeah, it was probably this guy that we all know and go to synagogue with, God forbid.
0: Wow. And does the Detroit Police Department have a good reputation for solving these types of crimes for overall competence?
7: No, I mean, like 75% of murders in Detroit go unsolved. So, uh, in all likelihood, it would not go unsolved. And uh, they, they put out reward. It, even there's like a $15,000 Crime Stopper reward and so some comments are like well how come the jewish community is not putting out like a hundred thousand half a million dollar reward she comes from a wealthy family her parents are doctors her grandfather like they had like a family foundation where like her family foundation um, was one of the bigger donors to the synagogue so how come there's only a fifteen thousand dollar reward so people are speculating that uh, it's someone in the jewish community that other people know that is the prime suspect and that's not why they're not uh you know putting out like a huge reward to find information as if it was like just suspected that it was a random crime or, uh, um, uh, anti-Semitism. Although it's also possible, like she was pretty liberal and thinking like, what would she want to do? Uh, you know, she supported black lives matter in these, in, uh, um, although she was pro Israel, uh, but, uh, you know, she did interfaith, you know, what would she want to do? Would she be so concerned with, uh, finding the perpetrator and having them punished? Um, but, uh, yeah, so most of the speculation is it's someone within the Jewish community, uh, that uh, that killed her, and and therefore it's uh, unclear what the Jewish community wants to do with it because it would probably be a disaster for the Jewish community for it to come out like that. Uh, but uh, I don't know any more than that. It's basically no information. There's no information within the Jewish community, like uh, you know, like saying like uh, who she might have, who like even the person who was arrested. So it was clearly someone from the synagogue who was arrested, um, but uh, there's been no release of the name. There's been no leak in the Jewish community um, of who this person was, although presumably people tight with her in the synagogue all know who the person who was arrested and released was.
0: Now, I see you started doing live streams with uh, Jen once again. So when did you restart this?
7: It was just a one-time thing, and it was because... I started streaming with this guy in Japan, Kevin McCarran, who's like an Anglo expat, uh, kind of counter Semite. Although ironically, he uh, went to university at Bar University, a PhD in neuroscience, and now he's in Japan. And when the war started, kind of like Keith Woods, you know, he wanted a Jew to talk to, related to ask you know basic questions on Judaism, Jewish belief, eschatology, and the war in Israel. And we started streaming. And it turned out that he you know, has a PhD in neuroscience, but he was also semi-friendly to uh reincarnation, transmigration of souls. So I convinced Jennifer to uh do a stream together. So I mean she's still around. Like we canceled week in review because she just didn't have Sunday night tonight available, which is Monday morning for her. Um, but she's still around. Um uh you know, so I reached out to her and asked her if she wanted to do a separate stream just on the you know her favorite topic of reincarnation. She so she said yes.
0: So you've done uh, two live streams about your failures as a Jew. Which one was the most painful or challenging or, or difficult to talk about?
7: Well, I don't think any of them were painful because I was kind of pretty familiar with it. So actually I did three. I called the last one Jewish anti, anti-Zionism because uh, yeah, I, I gave my history of going to Israel and becoming familiar with uh, and, uh, Orthodox anti-Zionism and how my rabbis were anti-Zionist. And how, like, as a Bolshuva from Detroit, half Jew from Detroit, I was shocked at the vitriol that Orthodox Jews had towards the state of Israel. Um, And then it took me a long time to understand. Um, But, yeah, with the war, like, I saw a few things. Like, one thing, like, just seeing my rabbi's son at Jerusalem Pizza, I failed to integrate into Orthodox culture. And I think that's somewhat all or nothing. Orthodox culture is, like, all or nothing. So it's very it's very difficult to be half-half. And so it's not surprising I failed in that manner. Um, and then my failure in the larger Jewish community, where um one thing because I had anti-Zionist leanings that uh that's extremely unpopular among organized Jews, liberal Jews. Or, or most of them don't even believe me. I tell them like, "Well, like, no, my rabbis are anti-Zionist. The Kratum were anti-Zionist. This is what the rabbis taught me. Uh, that your average like organized Jew, secular Jew, they they don't they're not even going to believe you that uh, that's what my rabbis taught me." And uh, and then also, yeah, I, I couldn't really find a place in the Jewish world because secular Jews don't really value what Orthodox Jews value, which is mainly like prayers, minyan, um, and Torah learning. And so the Jewish community kind of organized around me. And like, I mean, Stephen James says, I'm not, I don't want to be a resentful person to say like that. I think I deserve to be a leader of the Jews. Uh, But uh, the Jewish people are even secular, uh, liberal Jews are hierarchical people. We're not egalitarian people. So even like the Reconstructionist, uh, um, the feminist, the, the liberal, the federations, they're all hierarchical. And they raised up leaders around me. They're all very skeptical of me. So uh, you like, I, I really had a complete failure as I, I like, I feel successful as a Jew. Like I, I think I understand Judaism well. I do the practices, the prayers, the ritual. Um, But uh yeah, like they raised up leadership around me. That was all skeptical of me. And that uh, doesn't really even like me around. And then like, let alone my failure to find a, a wife and get married. And it's like, well, Sam Wool like she was a feminist even if i could even even if i could have like asked her out and she would have said yes um how would that have worked out like she was a feminist she wasn't uh, friendly to orthodoxy and uh you know like her Judaism was completely intertwined with like black lives matters and democratic uh, politics and pro immigration organizing and even the downtown synagogue so it's not just like okay let you know like it's a liberal synagogue you could just come to the synagogue and do your thing It's like, no, there's a hierarchical order, there's people in charge, and they're very uh, intent, like, this is what we're doing, and if you're not on board with our leadership, uh, we don't want you here. And uh, I I don't know if you agree that they say, like, uh, Judaism across the board is very hierarchical, they raise up leadership, and uh, not just Orthodox Judaism, but also liberal Judaism, it's basically all or nothing.
0: Yeah, there's something to that. It's definitely a highly competitive way of life, and it does tend to take over your life. But have you had any second thoughts about uh, trying anew to reintegrate into a a synagogue community?
7: No, I I think I have to find, like, if if I found a wife and had children, I I would. But at this point, I I don't think I'm actually going to find a wife through integrating in a synagogue community. So I've more tried to strike it out on my own. You know, so like Michael, who uh, is from a distant area, doesn't know many Jews or like uh, Keith Woods, and even just saying like, okay, like to Keith Woods or unaffiliated Jew, like I'm a rabbi. But if you're affiliated with Judaism, even like Israeli, you're just like, this guy's absolutely not a rabbi. He is a fraud. If he's telling you he's a rabbi, he's a fraud and a liar so uh, like there's that dynamic where like yeah i know a lot about judaism i love judaism i could basically take from scratch uh and train someone up as a baltruva with my knowledge um but eventually they're going to integrate within a community and there's going to be a hierarchical structure of accepting their leadership in order to be part of the community i mean like detroit's not big enough la I could probably do like your game or like I did in New York where there's uh just so many Jews and so many round you could synagogue hop or you could find a conglomeration of orthodox Jews that aren't happy with any of the rabbis and kind of have like a egalitarian gathering um but like the guy Benjamin Zev on the Keith Keithwood space said like well rabbis they're, they're ordained they perform uh you, you know family functions weddings bar mitzvah so he had a bar mitzvah or wedding and like he doesn't know anything from judaism but he knows like when he got married or, or uh you know, he had a bar mitzvah or the funeral there's a rabbi there and that rabbi is ordained so like i would assume even in your structure that if you found like a group of uh people that aren't really happy with the with the rabbinic hierarchy or status in hollywood or los angeles that still they have families and they uh have to have the rabbis officiate over that and then they have children they need their children to be accepted um you know maybe there's enough schools you could bounce them around schools or or competition but uh um so yeah i i figure i'm better bouncing out on my own and uh you're trying to uh uh and, and i have some success at that like you're relatively i like being a jew uh where um there's no other like competition from jewish organizations around where uh you know there's no affiliated jew- uh, judaism to be in competition with and not necessarily like competition but uh you know just to say like uh, well you're a jew that means these guys are your, uh you're part of this organization or you're following this authority structure to just be like i'm just a jew this is what i believe this is what i practice you want to talk about it. i love talking about this stuff versus like defending the actions in israel or defending uh the power structures that be yeah, I'll call that yeah. my failure. My failure as a Jew to integrate with the community because I think I succeeded as a Jew in, in like the learning, uh, knowing how to be an Orthodox Jew, uh, studying the text, uh, practicing it. But I failed in integration with uh, the community.
0: So my my theory is that we all tend to prefer to do things that we're good at, and so my my theory with regard to what you're talking about, is that you found that you were more comfortable and better at uh, live streaming about Judaism than practicing Judaism in a real-life, concrete community.
7: No, I think I was pretty good at practicing Judaism in a live community. Um, you're saying, like, okay, at the downtown synagogue, like, I was instrumental in creating a Torah learning program, creating Minion. And I got forced out by democratic processes that just weren't interested in that. And then in the Orthodox community, um, I was relatively like integrated. Like I was a respectful baltuvah. I did what rabbis told me. People were very impressed that I took things seriously. I knew how to learn. I knew how to daven. I could almost—I'm uh, not greatly, but I could even uh, you know uh, daven for the umed, lead lead uh, Torah service, read from the Torah. I served as assistant rabbi to. Um, you know, many rabbis found a function. It was, uh, my inability to go all or nothing and, you know, fully in because of my family situation and my inability to get married. Um, so like, as I got older, uh, and living a dual life when I decided to go back to university, but, but I think I was actually relatively quite successful in becoming an Orthodox Jew. It just, uh, um, it was too difficult to play both sides. And you know, at the end, if it was either orthodoxy or um, my greater life with my you know family or the secular world, I I was kind of forced out into choosing the secular world, and uh, my inability to uh, get married. And as I got older, just uh, you know, the assumption is that uh, something's wrong with me because I, I didn't get married.
0: Right, Which, but uh, might, is it just might be accurate? Is it it purely coincidence that when you took up, uh, shortly after you took up live streaming, that you increasingly dropped out of in person, real life uh, synagogue community and you developed an online community? Is it just uh, a coincidence that these two things developed simultaneously?
7: I think it was COVID 19. I mean, like, I started, uh, like, I went to synagogue all the holidays. I still occasionally went to events in the Orthodox community. Uh, it was COVID-19 where I completely dropped out of uh, the community. And uh, and then, like, I never reintegrated since COVID-19. Um, but, yeah, I mean, certainly uh, the streaming, talking with you, um, you're getting feedback from different uh, sources, dealing with some counter-Semites and, and understanding different things about uh, America, made me realize better I was never going to integrate into the Black Hat Orthodox community um, and maybe led me less so. Uh, but uh, no, I was still going to the downtown synagogue every every Friday night. I was still going to Jewish events uh, right up until COVID-19.
0: Now, I think there are probably millions of Americans who have dramatically reduced their participation in real-life religious services since covid is is that your impression too?
7: Yeah. And it, I mean, COVID-19 was the biggest uh, where I saw, like, I wasn't really part of anything. I mean, it's like I just went to synagogue or went to events. I had a few friendly people. But when COVID-19 hit and people reorganized their life, you know, they formed like the pods or the little groups. Um, You know, it hit that I just wasn't really part of it. That I was just kind of a guy who, like, showed up on the periphery that maybe had some friends. Or some reputation in the community, but I was an integral part of the community, and so I, mean, I think it was COVID nineteen that hit me like that, and then made you know re, uh, reassess my life, midlife crisis, and try to return to academic uh, research instead of like trying to uh, spend the rest of my days failing to integrate into Orthodox Judaism or even to liberal Judaism that I would take a different uh, approach for the second half of my life that would be more academic. And you're definitely streaming because I don't think there's any IRL venue. I don't think it'll ever happen that there'll be an IRL venue where, uh, you know, people will invite me to have like a conversation or, uh, I mean, remotely possible that, uh, I'll be put in front of a crowd to speak to, but I, I think that's pretty unlikely. So, uh, you know, streaming is probably replaced, uh, it it didn't really replace cause I didn't have that venue in my life. Like I, I was talking with Stephen James like that the other day, I mean, like uh, what you said, like you got 32 people watching like uh, maybe at a chess club, like there is no circumstance ever where like I talk and multiple people listen or hanging over my words. Uh, occasionally at the chess club, maybe like there'll be, you know, especially now I'm coaching, there's youth. There'll be like a handful of kids listening or, or a small group of people uh, hovering around the, uh, related to chess but uh that's never happened i don't think it's ever going to happen um but streaming creates a venue for that and uh you know seeing like okay like i felt part of orthodox judaism seeing like my rabbi's son he was very friendly to me how can are not coming around anymore You should come around more more often but like yeah when i do come around i'm you're just like okay i go to minion i shake a few hands i speak to a few people um but uh yeah, I guess I guess COVID nineteen like made me internalize the isolation, and uh made me also the streaming. Saw I could have success, like uh, like if I was, um, I don't know, depressed or just relegated. I say, okay, like I'm gonna be relegated to being kind of this like half Jew shuva that every that uh, a lot of people don't even like. The rest of my life, Um, that streaming led me to see like, oh, I could actually have success and find some sort of function. Um, that uh, I hadn't seen possible before.
0: Right. Do you agree as a general principle, people prefer to do things that they're good at? So for some people, that means, you know, real life, uh, being part of a real-life Orthodox community. For other people, it means playing a lot of video games. For other people, it means playing a lot of basketball. For other people, it means hanging out in a sports bar. For other people, it might mean working 80 hours a week coding. But I think we all naturally orient and prefer... To do things where
7: we're pretty good yeah self-esteem like self-esteem is partly due to expertise and that's you know somewhat why I've you said like chess coaching is probably the most successful thing in my life um because i'm pretty good at chess i'm pretty successful at it so uh you know i get good responses the kids that i coach end up uh performing well and it adds to my self-esteem you know nothing uh nothing argues uh Uh, like success. So uh, um, you got to find out what you're good at. And we talked about that like a a while ago, maybe even over a year ago, where you could do things for the Orthodox community, but uh, like a lot of times you're relegated to just kind of like simple service, cleaning, driving, and uh, like what function could I actually do that's useful for the community, or it's going to be an underutilization of my skills or if it's simply just like, okay, we'll take your money, you could donate money. Um, so I found use, even with like the Hindus, the Hare Krishnas, like I found like, uh, you know, like I was a valued part of their community. I did things, um, you know, a lot of them were new immigrants. A lot of them were engineers. A lot of them liked to have esoteric uh, theological discussions In in a way that I wasn't valued in the Jewish community. And so like it fed my self-esteem even to be, okay, like, you know what's this weird half jew keep on coming to the indian temple for uh but uh but at least i had a value uh as part of the community like i went to the temple i performed services i volunteered i helped out in the kitchen and there were all sorts of people i go in and you know i could just jump into um conversations that i found interesting
0: right so maybe
7: how...
1: I go
7: ahead well i'm saying that's somewhat how I felt like in synagogue, definitely in Brooklyn, but, uh, you I think politics ruined that in Judaism because uh, there's a larger connection between Judaism and politics and my politics didn't correspond with the mainstream Jewish politics or even like the authority type structure where you have the big players and it's just kind of like, don't say bad things about these people Like, it's our practice to kiss these people's asses. And if you're not in line with kissing these people's asses, like, uh, it's going to affect your relationship in the community. And certainly if you say bad things about the people that the majority of people are kissing their asses, like, that's going to cause big problems. That wasn't as much of a problem with the Indians. And maybe, like, related to your ADHD, that was something problematic where where just the community has their politics. And if you don't agree, you got to keep your mouth shut. Or the community has the people who uh, like they, they they're heroes and if you don't think that they're heroes you just got to keep your mouth shut on that and if, if you weren't able to do that and it caused repercussions to you
0: yeah yeah i understand that so how would you divide up your self-esteem like what are the primary sources of your self-esteem um i
7: mean my family my friends my business and uh my research and um my positive feedback you know like my streaming um and and what i'm good at what i feel that like my accomplishments
0: okay okay i'm gonna run off uh great to talk to you David. take care man
7: yeah thanks very man god god bless happy thanksgiving okay
0: bye-bye